Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Every once in a while, I will still encounter someone who smokes cigarettes. It's pretty rare. It is pretty rare these days. I mean, you go through uh, different trends, right? And right now in the United States... We are on a downward trend in terms of smoking cigarettes. We're certainly on an upward trend in terms of people smoking marijuana. I was driving here yesterday and uh, at night, just at night, right? like 10, 10 o'clock at night. And my, I keep my window open. I'm a fresh air fiend. I find it keeps me awake. And I like to you know, kind of see what's going on. And I smell marijuana right in the middle of the street. And sure enough, I looked. And it was at a red light or something, but I looked at the driver next to me. He's openly smoking marijuana as he's driving. Okay. There is still smoking of cigarettes legally permitted in the United States, getting rarer and rarer, fewer and fewer places that you can smoke cigarettes. I have never had a cigarette, honestly. I do smoke a cigar occasionally, but uh, I've never had a cigarette. There's one thing, aside from the rancid smell of secondhand smoke, that has always driven me crazy about cigarette smoking. And that is, it's not as bad in New York, in fairness, over the last 10 years. But uh, it's still a problem in New, York, in, in New York, especially outside of Manhattan and elsewhere. Cigarette butts. Wherever smokers congregate, there are cigarette butts and cigarette butts, and it looks disgusting. Now, one of the things they did in New York is they passed a law that where there's an outdoor smoking area, there has to be essentially a cigarette smoking receptacle. But outside of Manhattan, you just see a lot of cigarette butts, especially on the beach, on the boardwalk. You see them all over. It's it's untidy. It's unseemly. There is nothing that makes a place look immediately more dirty than seeing strewn cigarette butts lying around. Well, there is a country that has come up with a solution to this. And I'm curious as to your take on this. The the government of Spain has passed new rules to, you ready for this? Charge cigarette manufacturers for picking them up. So the Spanish government expects this new initiative to collect close to a billion euros. And this is what they call extended producer responsibility, a policy approach under which producers are given a significant responsibility, financial and or physical, for the treatment or disposal of post-consumer products. I am wondering 
what you think of this because not just with cigarette butts, but with anything, because this does have a certain appeal to me. On the one hand, I don't think it's the fault of a cigarette company because someone is too lazy to throw out their cigarette butt properly and just discard it on the floor. But on the other hand, look, they're making this product, which is being strewn about. Years ago, I was on the uh, local community board, and it's they don't have a lot of power. It's mostly advisory, and I might go back because of all that free time that I have. I might uh, try and get reappointed, but... I was on the community board, and there was a uh, there was a debate over whether to allow a fast food uh, restaurant of some sort. And one of the people objected, saying, "No, I'm voting against it because people go to these fast food restaurants, they go to these drive-throughs, and then they leave the trash from these fast food drive-throughs all over the place. And I'm not bringing another one to our community." And I said, well, that's not the fault of the fast food restaurant. That's the fault of the lazy slob throwing his McDonald's wrapper out the door. And they said, yeah. They said, yeah. But I see it a lot more with fast food restaurants. So I'm wondering how far this can be extended. And would you want something like this here in the United States? We have a special phone number today. We're having a problem with our main phone line. So our special phone number is 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. And I know if you're like me and you like to spell phone numbers, even though a lot of phones these days, they don't even really have visible letters. But if you want to spell that out, that is Ted... Wow Gigs, T-E-D, Wow Gigs. That's our phone number for the uh, for the next few hours. Cigarette butts are a big deal. Do you have any idea how many cigarette butts are disposed of every year? Trillions, trillions. And according to the Ocean Conservancy, cigarette butts break down into microplastics and release all the toxic chemicals they have absorbed and are often consumed by wildlife. It is an ecological disaster, these cigarette butts. They're most littered, uh, they are the most littered item found on beaches around the globe. Think about that. The most littered item. Now, I don't know if that's as true in places like New York and New Jersey where you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes on the beach, but I suspect that it is. I was walking the beach, uh, excuse me, walking the boardwalk in Atlantic City uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I saw a few cigarette butts. Even though you're not really allowed to smoke on the beach, people do. So during Ocean Conservancy's annual international coastal cleanup last year, over 78,000 cigarette butts were removed from coastal areas in Florida alone, with over 1.2 million cigarette butts removed globally. So while the health consequences of smoking and secondhand smoke even are well understood, the harm that these discarded cigarette butts present to wildlife, to flora, and also to human health are often just forgotten. And I'll add that it's just unseemly. It doesn't look good. So as of a couple of days ago, as of January 1st, 2023, cigarette smoking has been banned 
on public beaches in Miami Beach to deal with the problem. They're banned in New York. They're banned in New Jersey. In Spain, the nation is making moves. See, Europe, they still smoke. So I imagine this is an even bigger problem out there. In Spain, the nation is making moves and made 525 beaches smoke-free last year. I wonder if this fee or the, the price of picking up all these cigarette butts should be paid for by the cigarette companies. What do you think? 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. There's an environmental website called Tree Hugger, and they have been calling for deposits on everything as the best way to eliminate litter and solve the problems of recycling. But it never occurred to them that something as small as a cigarette butt could work in a deposit system. But that's what the government of Catalonia proposed last year, a 20-cent deposit on every cigarette butt, which would almost double the price of a pack of cigarettes. So I don't think that's been implemented. In fact, I know it has not. But if that were to be implemented, what you would do is essentially pay a little bit more and then you bring back your cigarette butts to wherever you bought your cigarettes from and they'd give you the money back, just like you do now with cans and bottles. So I uh, I don't know how practical that is because you have people that are traveling, that are on the road, and they buy cigarettes from whatever store they encounter. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how practical that one is. But I am in, I, I'm curious if you're not for this Spanish system, and I'm kind of – I like the idea, but I'm on the fence about it because I, I just don't – I recognize that cigarette butts are a problem, but – I just don't know how you don't hold the person that's littering accountable. That should be the person that's held accountable rather than whatever the item is that is being littered. Because if you do it with the cigarette companies, do you have to also do it with the fast food company? You have to do it with everything that's littered. Let's say um, somebody, you know, I give pens away sometimes, right? And um, if somebody throws one of my pens away, am I responsible for that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Tell me what you think. 833-969-4447. My real question, though, is if you're not for this, what's your plan to deal with the trillion cigarette butts that need to be dealt with every year? In Spain, the tobacco companies have to pay for the cleanup of discarded cigarettes. If you're not for that plan, what's your plan? 833-969-4447. Or, again, if you're somebody that likes to spell out the number, the number is Ted Wow Giggs. Ted Wow Giggs. All right. uh, Let me begin with Robert in Suffolk. What do you think of this, Robert? Robert, I got you. Okay, Frank. Sorry? Good morning. Morning, Robert. What's on your mind? Energy, energy, man. Come on. (laughs) Wake up. It's not a good idea. Where does it end, man? Come on. You know how much this going to cost to increase in manufacturing and the prices we'll have to pay for things? Forget it. Well, I think I don't think the Spanish government would mind that, honestly. I think they would like a higher cost of a price of cigarettes because their thinking is that uh, it might lead less people to uh, to smoke. By the way, um, one of the people that uh, that was a longtime smoker was Leonard Nimoy, 
who played uh, Spock on Star Trek, and ultimately he died from COPD, which he acquired from many years of smoking. And someone that had tried to get Leonard Nimoy to stop smoking for years was William Shatner. I am going to talk with William Shatner. We actually already recorded this a couple hours ago, but uh, I am going to be, you'll hear my discussion with William Shatner in about 10 minutes. I don't remember who it was that first brought it to my attention. I don't know if it was a caller to this show or my friend JFK or someone else that Shatner is going to be hosting a series of screenings of Star Trek II, The uh, Wrath of Khan, all over the country, including a couple in New Jersey. So he's doing a couple in Texas starting this week. Then he's going to Indiana, and then he's going to do a couple in New Jersey in February, one in Red Bank, one in Englewood. And I'm going I'm going to go to one, maybe, maybe even both, because I love that film, and I'd love to hear Shatner's insights on that. So we're going to talk about those upcoming screenings and what people can actually expect to to learn in them. 833-969-4447. Talking about this Spanish idea and whether or not this can work on a practical level in a place like the United States or in New York. Should, well, really, we're talking about a moral issue and an ethical one. If people are littering these cigarette butts... Should the tobacco companies, the cigarette companies, have to pay the cost of their cleanup? 833, yes, no, maybe, why, why not? What do you think? 833-969-4447. Igor in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Hey there, Frank. Don't you think that uh, the the cigarette companies, in effect, are going to raise their prices and, in effect, force the smoker to clean up the mess. Don't you think that in the end that's what's going to happen? I do. Yeah. I, essentially, I, I do think that's exactly what's right. going to happen. And I think that that's really appropriate. You know, when you when you stop your car, it's not as not as often as it once was. When you stop your car at a traffic light and, and you see everybody's cigarette on the ground, you just say, hey, listen, you know, we don't want it as much as you didn't want it. Why don't you keep it in your own car? And I think it is effectively, this is a way of uh, cleaning things up at the cost of the person who's doing the polluting. I I hear that, Igor. And that's why I think the idea does have some appeal to me. But let me ask you this. Let me just throw, just to play devil's advocate. Let's, uh, and again, I've never smoked a cigarette, but let's say I'm a cigarette smoker and uh, I I smoke and dispose of my cigarette butts responsibly. And after I finish my uh, cigarette, I make sure I throw them in the proper receptacle. I take care of it. I'm tidy. And Kenneth, he smokes his cigarettes, and he throws these cigarette butts all over the place. Why shouldn't Kenneth be the one that's held responsible for his haphazard showing, uh, throwing around of uh, cigarette butts? Why should I, as somebody that disposes of my butts responsibly, why should I be held to the same standard as an irresponsible smoker like Kenneth? Well understood, Frank. You know, but uh, it, it seems as though there are the other calamities that would be equally spreading of, of of that responsibility if you think about other other instances you know and uh and and granted i don't know what the fraction is of people who obviously uh, dispose of things properly or not but uh, but i certainly accept your argument well thank you uh igor i appreciate that and again I, i'm sort of 
The idea does have some appeal to me. The thing that concerns me is where do you stop, right? Uh, Someone just wrote to me on Twitter that says they don't like smoking, but they really dislike dog excrement even more. Well, there was a movement to do DNA tests on dog excrement to determine whose dogs were responsible for that. I think really in places where litter is a problem, and litter is a problem in a lot of communities, in places where litter is a problem, I think what we really need is better enforcement, right? Better, and I'm not somebody that likes to see more people find or things like that, but litter makes the whole community look bad, and it costs a lot of money. So I think if you're going to litter, whatever you're doing, whether it's cigarette butts, whether it's not picking up after your dog, whether it's a fast food container, I think there needs to be broader use of enforcement. Right. I think we need more littering tickets. Hate to say that, but I think it's true, Uh, because otherwise I don't know how you pick and choose certain industries to hold those folks responsible. And I I think it does, to some degree, abrogate um, individual responsibility, because why should Kenneth, who's littering like crazy, be paying the same thing? as a cigarette smoker that I am, who's throwing away the butts responsibly. I don't know. 833-969-4447. William Shatner joining us uh, in about 10 minutes. Let me say hello to Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hi, Frank. Larry. Am I, um, uh, Frank, am I on the air? I think so, Larry. Okay, guys, you should call me. Hey, listen, you know, I am really remiss about all this. We, we bring problems on ourselves, and then we wonder... What are we going to do about it? Listen, years ago, this was never a problem. Cigarette butts have been in the streets for years. You know why it's a problem now? Because people's behavior have changed. People now, instead of putting the cigarette out with their foot and kicking it into the curb, where it can be cleaned up by those, by those city sweepers, they vacuum up the curb, they leave it on the sidewalk and the smoke, and they let it go. Where the smoke is going to people that are minding their own business. Why should I have to inhale somebody's cigarette butt? They should give tickets for not putting out, not stepping on your butt, and not throwing it in the curb. Well, I, it's I, in the curb, I agree like with I that. Said, I agree with why that, Larry. Is it a problem if it's in the curb? I, I agree with that, Larry. But the pardon the pun. But I, I, if someone does extinguish the cigarette butt properly, you still have the problem with you know essentially cigarette butt pollution from an ecological uh, perspective and just from an unsightly perspective. So even if you do extinguish it properly, you still do have to deal with the butt disposal issue, right? Uh, well, as I said, those city sweep, those sweepers uh, suck up all those butts if they're in the curb where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. We just have to make sure that people um, you know, adhere to what used to be the social norm that you dispose of your butt, that is disposal. That used to be considered disposal, putting it in the street. You know, I I can't disagree with you. I I would say, though, there are a lot of communities like the borough that I live in, we don't really have street sweepers, right? And a lot of communities around uh, around the country that are listening to us right now, they don't have street sweepers, but they do have cigarette smokers. But it's a it's a fine point, Larry. Uh, before we get to William Shatner, let, oh, we're also going to be uh, talking about the um, the polarization in Washington. Uh, I'm going to be joined in our third hour 
by former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman. You know, we've been talking about this no-labels movement, and uh, Joe Lieberman is a leader in this no-labels movement. So we're going to talk about where we go from here, uh, what the lessons to be learned from the Speaker's election were, what it means for the next two years of governance, and what it means for the 2024 presidential race, because it's going to be interesting. So uh, we've got William Shatner coming up in a few minutes, and then Joe Lieberman joining us a little later. But first, let me say hello to Neil on Staten Island. Hello there, Neil. Hi. Uh, I don't think that uh, uh, the consumer should be paying to pick up the cigarette butts. You know, a pack of cigarettes is, what, like $13, $15, $14 a pack now? Uh, the taxes are so high. Use that tax money that they're collecting and uh, put that towards picking them up. Well, uh, that's what that's what's being done now. The taxpayers are paying, and I guess that's well, what that's what the governments are upset with. What they're saying: Why should uh, the taxpayers be footing the bill w- instead of the cigarette companies? Well, no, you you're paying taxes on that pack of cigarettes. Use that money. It's not like the taxpayers are paying it. The user of the cigarettes is paying the high tax just to, just on a pack of cigarettes or, or all tobacco. I mean, it, it's kind of ridiculous, Frank, when you got people defecating in the street. Uh, you, you got syringes all over the place. Well, why not ask B&D syringe to, to pay to clean well, up? Well, because the there are not a trillion of them. There are not a trillion of them, and they're not, um, they're not causing the kind of worldwide ecological disaster for both humans and animals that uh, that cigarette butts are. If there were a trillion syringes on the street, you would see, I think, a similar call uh, for, you know, uh, charging the syringe manufacturer. Well, the streets are full of homeless and garbage and, and they're defecating all over the place. I mean, there's no great call to get rid of them. Well, I I think there is. Right. I mean, I think there is a great call to to get rid of them. And um, I I just uh, I'm not sure, you know, in terms of. All right. So there you have it. Neil. I I just don't know where, you know, where you go from there. Right. I'm so that whole argument of whataboutism, it it doesn't it doesn't sit with me. Right. It doesn't do anything for me. Well, cigarette butts are a problem. Oh, yeah, well, so is uh, human feces. Okay, all right, well, we fixed that. Well, so is uh, dog feces. Okay, a lot of things are a problem. The problem we're talking about here is the worldwide economic disaster, the worldwide ecological disaster, that a trillion cigarette butts that are disposed of each year are causing. And the question is, how do we address it? And I give Spain some credit, even though I'm not really fully ready to embrace this and endorse this. I give Spain some credit for at least being willing to try something. Something. All right. Um, 833-969-4447 if you want to comment on this. The great William Shatner, the Lawrence Olivier of the airwaves, joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite. By then. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I have to confess, this is one of the most difficult radio interviews I've ever done. It's not difficult for all the typical reasons an interview might be difficult. It's not difficult because I don't have an interest in the subject matter, the person that I'm talking to. Quite the opposite. But imagine... Getting to talk with someone who's one of the most interesting people in the galaxy, who's done it all in movies, television, music, publishing, live theater, charity, paintball. He has even gone to space and learned the language of Esperanto. Imagine you get to talk with that person, but only for 10 minutes. How do you pick what to focus on? For me, it's like being given an audience with the Pope, but you essentially only have enough time to talk about the weather. Well, luckily for you and me, William Shatner, legendary actor, performer, recording artist, etc., is actually hosting a special series of showings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and he's going to be answering a few more of our questions. I'm going to be at the one in Red Bank, New Jersey in February. We'll tell you how you can get tickets. The challenge in this interview remains the same, though. Mr. Shatner, you know what an admirer I am of yours. It's great to talk with you again, sir. My dear Frank Morano, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, one of the things, one of the aspects of your career that I don't know that people have a full appreciation for is how good of an interviewer you are. You used to do this great interview program called William Shatner's Raw Nerve, the interview that you did with Rush Limbaugh, for instance, still online. People could see it. One of the most fascinating discussions I've ever heard two people have. And he came to my house later on. I invited him to Monday Night Football. It was a Monday night. And, uh, you know, as you uh, only too well know, you do an interview, and a year later, you know, who was that again? Where did that <laughs> But that one I remember uh, so vividly. He came to my house and uh, watched Monday Night Football. And the interview that I did with him, uh, I remember he wept tears about his childhood. It, mm. was, it was a fascinating, fascinating interview. What is a conservative? What does that mean? Well, a conservative... Uh, believes in the principles of the founding of the country, individual liberty, yep. individual responsibility, yep. life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. I believe that. We believe that people, if left alone, will be free to pursue their excellence to the degree they wish. Uh, there is a point where, yeah, you know, you, you can't drive on the, ro- the left side of the road. You need a, some regulation. Not saying that, that. We're not conservatives. We're not opposed to regulation. But regulation has to be based on the fact that the individual is best left alone to take care of himself in the pursuit of daily aspects of life, education, job, or whatever. We don't make the assumption. We look at some people because of their race, sex, creed, or what. We don't say, that person can't do it. That person needs us. That person needs a government program. That person needs somebody helping them because that's not really what those people are after. They're after power and control over those people's lives, making them as dependent as possible. The reason why this matters to me is I want a great country. A country is made up of great people, pursuing excellence, doing the best they can. It is the people who make the country work, not government programs and not people doing things. So far, you haven't said anything that alienates anybody, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, everybody uh, wants the principles you're espousing. I, I, I interviewed um, Stephen Hawking. Uh, maybe the last interview that he did, because he died not too long thereafter. And that, too, was fascinating. And part of the fascination was we enjoyed each other's company as best we could, uh, given the fact that he was talking through a computer and had to spell every word. He invited me to dinner to his house, and I agreed, and then said to the producer of the talk show, uh, what in heaven's name am I going to do uh, at dinner with a gentleman who uh, is totally incapacitated, except for his mind? And it was quite an evening. But 
I, I enjoyed interviewing as I know you do. No doubt about it. And you also, the series of, you've done a couple of great documentaries, including The Captains, where you've actually interviewed all the actors that have played captains on Star Trek. Over the years of doing things like that, both the talk show, documentary programs like that, what have you learned about the craft of interviewing? What advice would you give someone in terms of how to conduct a a meaningful conversation? Everybody, everybody, and this goes for what I do on stage at night, uh, after the movie, uh, and we'll talk about it in a minute, after playing the movie uh, The Wrath of Khan, I'll come out on stage and talk uh, with and to and, and enter- entertain and be part of the audience. And, and what I've discovered over the years, which I know you've long since discovered, is everybody has a story. Mm. Everybody, no matter who they are, whether they are verbal, voluble, or not, they have a story buried there that sometimes they don't want to tell. Sometimes they tell a different story. Sometimes they tell different versions of the same story. But everybody has a story. Everybody has buried deep beneath these layers of uh, calloused, uh, calluses of guarding against uh, revealing themselves, buried deep beneath that is their child-like story, and that eventually they want to tell you. So you do in this uh, screening or the series of screenings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, this is arguably the greatest sequel ever made. It's one of the few sequels that probably is better than the film that it was a sequel to. Uh, people are still talking about it four decades later. Folks can get tickets at WilliamShatnerTour.com. Uh, beginning this week, there are showings in Midland, Texas, Lubbock, Texas, Sugarland, Texas. In the uh, New Jersey area in February, there's one in Red Bank at the Count Basie Center. And another one in Englewood at, uh, at the Bergen uh, at per- Pack. What's it like? Even if people have seen this film a hundred times, what's it like watching Star Trek II with William Shatner as opposed to watching it at home on a TV screen? Well, first of all, it'll be on the big screen. First of all, it's on a large movie screen. Secondly, the the film has been refurbished. Its a color and sound has been enhanced, and so it's a really lovely evening watching a really moving uh, the movie still uh, stands up and it's a uh, a story that still touches you and then the if not unique the unusual aspect of the actor who is in the movie comes out on stage now it's a bit embarrassing and I allude to that uh, when talking to the audience 40 years later you know (laughs) <laughs> I've had kids look around for Captain Kirk, and the mother says, well, here's <laughs> Captain Kirk, the kid's looking around, uh, and I joke about it. But the passage of time is such that, uh, you know, the, the, the weight of years weighs you down. Uh, and that's a joke, and that's fun, what's happened during the intervening years. And, uh, and all of those things make up an evening with me in addition uh, to the movie. It's a fun time for everybody. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to going, and people can get tickets at uh, WilliamShatnerTour.com. I'm looking for the VIP experience option that allows me to have cigars with you afterwards, but so far I'm not seeing that on the website. I'm going to keep looking. Um, you VIP, will... uh, yeah, there is a VIP thing, 
uh, uh, it'll appear. No, uh, there is. Uh, I, the, the I don't see a cigar option on it, but uh, I will uh, take oh, my chances option. just on the photo. Oh, that went up in smoke. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I do wonder, though, is you're doing these screenings all over the country, Texas, Indiana, New Jersey, hundreds of people uh, going to see each of these screenings. A lot of the people, I'm sure, probably have the same questions about the film. And I'm, I'm one, I wonder... Does that get difficult? Does that get frustrating at times to, for the last four decades of people seeing and enjoying this film, asking some of the same questions? Do you ever become the William Shatner character from that Saturday Night Live sketch, for instance, when you're at the Star Trek convention? Um, like when you um, left your quarters for the last time and you, you opened up your safe, um, what was the combination? <laughs> I mean, I mean, for crying out loud, it's it's just a TV show. I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. You, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few years into a colossal waste of time. Right. Well, uh, it's true that there are some questions that people ask that uh, are the same. Uh, and I'm trying to think of one. Um that evoke a similar answer because if you're going to answer the question. But I can dance around that, mm. and I can bring them into it. And and then the answer has another color to it. And I'm always looking for a variation on the theme anyway. And so it's entertaining for me not to give the exact same words or the same answer. Sometimes I've thought of a good joke uh, that goes with that question, and I'll repeat the joke because it's you know why why lose a laugh? But mostly the evening with me is uh, completely new and different for me as well as for you, the audience. If people are just tuning in with Chung with William Shatner, legendary actor, author, recording artist, he's hosting a special series of screenings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, starting uh, this week in Texas. You get tickets at WilliamShatnerTour.com. He's going to be heading to Indiana, New Jersey, all over the country. One uh, question I do have to ask is, obviously, this was the feature film debut of uh, of Kirstie Alley, who we recently lost. So sad. I was a big fan That's of hers. True. You know, again, good for you. Frank, I, I didn't think of that. Kirstie Alley, in all, all her beautiful, youthful uh, being, she's there. She was such a colorful character. Any suggestions, Admiral? Prayer, Mr. Savick. The Klingons don't take prisoners. And she's so beautiful. Uh, we all have standards of beauty. I don't know where that would come from for each individual. Maybe it's your mother, maybe it's some picture you saw as a child, but we all have an ideal which is uh, which varies from individual to individual. Kirstie Alley mm. had the face and figure of my ideal of a beautiful woman. I, I certainly concur. She had said that at this point in her career, she was going through a lot of things and she was uh, maybe partying a little bit too hard. And maybe she didn't approach this experience with the level of professionalism that uh, that she would later roles. And she thought that maybe she that was a little frustrating to her co-stars in the film, including perhaps you. I'm wondering, I know you guys became uh, pretty close later, but uh, what was the experience like for you working with her during the production of this film? 
Well, I, I didn't have much to do with her, and I wish I'd had more to do with her. She was, I've heard her say that she was uh, less than what she became in, in terms of professional behavior. I don't remember that. Uh, you know, the, the silly little things that people do uh, are merely burrs on a gear. The gears are so uh, adapted, and I'm trying to bring that image too far. She was, she was terrific, and she did have her prob psychological problems, but her basic personality was so vivid and so colorful. She overcame it all, in my opinion. One of the themes of the film is aging. Obviously, it's Admiral Kirk's, uh, I think, 52nd birthday. Damn it, Jim, what the hell is the matter with you? Other people have birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a funeral? Bones, I don't want to be lectured. What the hell do you want? This is not about age. And you know it. It's about you flying a goddamn computer console when you want to be out there hopping galaxies. He's dealing with needing glasses. He's dealing with uh, getting to a certain point, not necessarily having a relationship with his son, a whole bunch of other things. Obviously, you're in your 90s. I'm sure that you've thought at least a bit about the prospect of aging. I know you've written a bit about it in uh, your latest book, Boldly Go, which is terrific. It's a must read. I'm wondering, did any of the things that Admiral Kirk was going through in the film subsequently became become things that William Shatner was going through? Like when you realized you couldn't ride a horse like you used to, did you, uh, did you empathize and think, okay, now I know what it felt like for Kirk to need bifocals? You know, again, you're so good at what you do. Um, yes, uh, now uh, the horses I'm still riding and competing. Uh, just don't want to fall off, uh, <laughs> which brings you closer to falling off, by the way. Uh, but things like skiing. Uh, some years ago, I face planted in some. I, I, I used to be a, a, a really good skier. I skied uh, for my high school team and racing, and I brought my children into skiing, and I loved the winters. But I couldn't get out of this face plant, and people had to uh, help me out of it. And I thought to myself, what would happen if there weren't some people coming by to help me get up out of this uh, uh, wet snow? Uh, I've heard of um, snowboarders hitting a bank of snow and, un and unable to get out uh, died. Uh, it would be like being buried in an avalanche. And... Uh, Getting up uh, onto your feet from when you're, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up. Mm. Well, you've fallen and you can't get up, not because you've hurt yourself, but because getting up is an, a physical act that you can no longer do. Your legs are no longer strong enough to get you up. Now, that isn't the case, and that isn't so in my case, but that's, that can happen. And so that prevents you from doing a lot of things. I went uh, scuba diving. I, I, I used to be a great scuba diver, and I went uh, to um, swim with sharks uh, last year, and I thought, my God, you know, I'm not as agile as I once was, and there were these tiger sharks hanging around, and the guides that were with us would sometimes, this 18-foot, there were four of them, 18-foot tiger shark would come close, and they'd push them aside. They were able to somehow be alert enough to push them. Uh, they'd be coming at you, and the, the, guy, the, 
the guard, the guide with you would push them aside. It was remarkable. And I thought, I can't do that anymore. And scuba diving is not something I can do anymore. So I've had to give up things that I did once. And it was with great regret, but also with the knowledge that it's wise to do. And talking to you uh, uh, is uh, the equal of uh, swimming with sharks. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I've seen that special of you swimming with sharks and then read your description about it in the book. Uh, hopefully this is a little less adrenaline inducing than that probably was. Uh, I will let you go in a minute, but I, I do have to ask you, one of the great themes in the film, and we're talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the upcoming screenings where William Shatner is not only going to be there, but answering your questions, you can get tickets at williamshatnertour.com. I'm going to be there. Um, one of the themes that uh, that's in the film is when Spock dies is McCoy says... He's really not dead. As long as we remember him. He's really not dead as long as we remember him. Now, here you have a film, not only has Kirstie Alley passed on, but to Forrest Kelly. Uh, you have uh, James Doohan, Michelle Nichols now, uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh, Merrick Buttrick, who plays your son. And I'm wondering, do you think that holds true to these incredible performances that people are still critiquing, Ricardo Montalban, of course, critiquing and enjoying years after the people who gave them have passed away? Well, I'm sure that's true, but everything ages, even the electronic uh, uh, impulses buried on a, on a disc uh, ages. The, everything disappears. Everything turns to dust uh, sooner or later, uh, and sooner, the difference between sooner and later in terms of Earth years is uh, uh, a, a moment in time. What doesn't disappear and what Leonard, for example, was really wonderful at was good deeds and uh, mm. helping people. Uh, those reverberate f- as long as mankind exists. And that's, that's your legacy, and that's what people, people should remember. A lot of folks may not realize that you and Ricardo Montalban, who both gave incredible performances in this film, you guys actually are never uh, you never faced one another. All of the interaction that you did was either through uh, communicators or through a view screen. Yet you'd never know it by watching this uh, this performance. I guess that was a function of scheduling. The two of your schedules didn't work out at the time where you could be in the same place at the same time. Well, I don't know about that. I think it was the the writers, uh, uh, ah. and it was pointed out to me. I didn't realize that for a long time. You know, Frank, you're so good <laughs> at this. Would you, uh, and I don't know whether they've got a, uh, a uh, whatever we call it, uh, 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 somebody who works with me on stage. Have they asked you to, to be on stage with me? Uh, 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 would, you, would you consider it? Are you kidding me? Wild horses couldn't stop me from uh, from doing so. I would love it. I will make that suggestion as soon as this uh, interview is over, and uh, hopefully they'll get in touch with you because you're so good. Your knowledge, your uh, your uh, interest are so entertaining. I'm entertained by it. So I'd love to be on stage with you when we're in uh, in New Jersey. I, I would uh, I would be honored. Um, uh, last question about Star Trek Two, though. Uh, this is a very different type of film than the previous film, than Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Do you credit that to Harve Bennett, uh, the producer, Nicholas Meyer, the director who's been on this show, or or some combination of factors? I know it was a much less budget than the first film, but most people give it much higher marks in terms of energy, in terms of well, drama. That was the whole reason 
for making the film. Mm. Uh, after this, the first one had, uh, I don't know, $100 million budget. This had a $30 million budget, and it was given to the uh, television department uh, because they would spend less, and that was a function of the television department. But also, all the people who worked on the film worked, you know, wrote a film that uh, told a story as against needing a lot of special effects, which cost a lot of money. So, yes, it was definitely designed to spend one-third at least of what the uh, Star Trek the movie spent. Uh, uh, it was, uh, it was a, a definite design. Uh, people can check out the uh, the tickets and get either the VIP option or just regular tickets to WilliamShatnerTour.com. Uh, finally, sir, you're in a completely different type of production than Star Trek, Judgment at Nuremberg. I think you gave one of the most stirring performances I've ever seen back in 1961. We're going to come to a point where pretty soon no Holocaust survivors will be alive and no World War II veterans uh, will be alive. And that film, Judgment at Nuremberg, does such an incredible incredible job capturing the emotions and the history of what happened during the Holocaust. I find that as more and more Holocaust survivors pass away, that film becomes even more important. I'm curious as to your take on that. Well, uh, I agree with you. And, but interestingly enough, I'm a member, uh, I'm a, uh, a member uh, of a, a company called Storyfile and Storyfile has uh, artificial intelligence technology that is 3D and also uh, when it's put in a certain mode, you can ask it questions and it'll answer questions. Storyfile began with uh, Stephen Smith, who interviewed as many Holocaust survivors as he could find, hmm. putting them on this artificial intelligence uh, technology so that you can press a button and ask that person a question. And I uh, ultimately did five days of uh, question and answers to, uh, to Storyfile, and we've recorded it, and, and uh, it's going to become part of a facility in which you can come to a hmm. booth and ask me a question, and the chances are likely I'll have a... a a, a, an extended answer to your question because I've already pre-recorded, and 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 it'll exist after I, I'm dead. That that is uh, extraordinary. That's the next level hologram kind of thing, Mr. Shatner. It is always a treat to talk with you. I do hope uh, I get to share a stage with you, or at least just see you in uh, in New Jersey for the upcoming showing of Star Trek II: The I, Wrath I, of Khan. Thank you, sir. Make that happen. Thank you. Uh, people can get tickets at WilliamShatnerTour.com. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 833-969-4447. That's a new number, special number, probably for this morning only, 833-969-4447. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College. That's where I caught her eye. She told me that her dad was loaded. I said, in that case, I'll have a rum and Coca-Cola. She said, fine. 
And in 30 seconds' time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. Well, what else could I do? I said, I'll see what I can do. I took her to a supermarket. I don't know why, but I... This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This, of course, is uh, a terrific... William Shatner uh, song called Common People from one of my favorite William Shatner albums, which is called Has Been. Very, very good. And uh, hopefully I'll be uh, able to be on that stage in New Jersey. You know, I, I'm. Um, <laughs> I, I, it would be, honestly, the coolest thing that I've ever experienced if that comes to fruition, which is why like, I, I just can't believe that it would happen. So I'm trying to... I'm trying not to get too excited about it. If it happens, that's great. If not, and uh, then so be it. All right. Uh, 833-969-4447. That's uh, 833-969-4447. New phone number for today. We are going to go through the email next hour. If you want to email me, you can do so. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at uh, WABCRadio.com. A couple of people writing to me about uh, the passing of uh, Diamond, part of that duo of Diamond and Silk. I, uh, I of course, knew who they were, and I've seen them on cable news uh, several times. I I don't really have much to add. I mean, it's sad that she died, and... uh, my thoughts go out to uh, her friends and her family and her fans. I, they never, I never really paid much attention to their whole thing. I know she spoke for a lot of people and really excited a lot of people. And it's sad whenever anyone at a relatively young age uh, passes away. But uh, honestly, I didn't follow her career that closely, so I really uh, don't have much to add. All right. 833-969-4447. Mike is from Parts Unknown. Hello there, Mike. Hey, Frank. Um, I'll tell you what. I started listening a little while ago, and this has to be, it has to be, the pinnacle of all the interviews you have ever done or will continue to do. And to think you might join him on stage, you know, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Somebody once said, a famous actor years ago, um, you know, you'll be fine. Just, you know, learn your lines. Don't bump into any furniture, and, uh, and you'll walk a good walk, you know. Hey, I like really, the, really fantastic. Well, thank you. I like that quote. Where is that quote from, by the way? Oh, you got me. I read so much over the years. Um, I know it was from a famous actor, uh, I think in the 40s or 50s. But uh, that was riveting, man. And, you know, I could, I could see, you know, I could hear the emotion in your voice. And also William Shatner, you know, he, he, he admires you for what you've done. Well, that's, so, that's uh, I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. And I just looked that up, that quote, actually. It's from veteran actor Alfred Lunt, uh, which is great. I would not have got that. If I ever got that on the $1,000 minute, forget about it. I would not get the $1,000. All right, Frank. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I appreciate uh, appreciate it, Mike. Thank you very much. Uh, Very quickly, Billy in Queens. Got about a minute here, Billy. Hello. Yes, Frank, I just want to say this is a great show tonight. Um, this is why I love talk radio, and I don't have a TV. I don't watch TV. I just, 
you know, and you cover great topics like the cigarettes and the garbage and, and, and go to William's chat. This is just, I just want to say it's a great show. Oh, that's awfully nice of you, Bill. Thank you. You don't need a TV. If you have, uh, if you have radio stations like this one, you're, you're all set. That's very nice of you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Coming up next hour, uh, we're going to go through the mail. If you want to write to me, you can. Uh, can be critical, too. I don't mind criticism. Frank.Morano at uh, WABCRadio.com. And then a little later, we're going to talk with former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman about what's happening in the country politically. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There are many subjects which I just don't understand. I don't want to say I don't understand them, but I'm certainly not an expert in them. And one of the many subjects that I make no bones about my ignorance in is economics. And so years ago, I was talking with a friend. uh, It was actually actually Jay Diamond, I think. Uh, We were talking about rent control, uh, regular just rent stabilization and rent control. And Jay made the point to me that in a city like New York, rent stabilization is essential because in a city like New York, you have a limited supply of housing, just as you do anywhere else, but you have essentially an unlimited demand. You have all these people that, um, you know, a wealthy Arab sheik that will want to buy a New York apartment just to stay there one weekend a month, for instance, and a lot of other people like that. So, you know, I thought that was interesting. And New York in general, I have paid pretty close attention to this. New York is a very attractive place when it comes to foreign buyers. Other people over the years have proposed something like a, a pied-à-terre tax so that uh, we can get more people who actually want to live in New York full-time to be able to afford to live here. And if you want to live here um, and you're just going to be here one week a, a year or whatever the case may be, you have to pay a little bit more. Okay, put that aside. Then I saw what Canada did last week, and we have a lot of uh, listeners in Canada. The fact of the matter is New York, like a lot of places, is completely unaffordable. If you're able to, and New Jersey's getting this way too. I mean, when I was growing up, everyone was moving out of New York to places like New Jersey because you could afford to buy a house. Now you're seeing more and more people move to places like Pennsylvania. Now, Pennsylvania, the housing prices are ticking up. You're seeing more and more people move to the Carolinas or Arizona or, yes, even Florida, although Florida has largely remained um Mostly a retirement destination, but not exclusively. My friend Mike Wolf just moved there, and there's a lot of things to like about Florida. But I'm not even talking about the culture or the politics. I'm just talking about the cost when it comes to housing. What I think Canada – what Canada has done last week is very interesting. And I'm wondering 
if this is something that if you live in a hot real estate market, when I say a hot real estate market, I mean a place like New York or parts of California where nobody that grew up there can afford to buy a house in part because the demand for housing there is so high. And it really, the neighborhood where I grew up, a lot of my friends and family that I grew up with, they all moved. Not even because they got sick of the neighborhood. They were priced out. They couldn't afford to buy anything. They wanted to buy a home. They couldn't afford to buy anything. So do you know what Canada is doing? Canada, as of nine days ago, is closing its doors to foreign investors who want to purchase homes. A new Canadian law took effect on January 1st that essentially bans foreign buyers from buying residential properties as investments for two years. So in two years, then foreigners can go and buy Canadian homes again. The law was passed because of a spike in Canadian home prices since the start of the pandemic. Isn't that interesting? The people in Canada are, at least in many different parts of Canada, are experiencing the same thing that I've been witnessing in New York, which is they can't afford to buy a house. So since the pandemic, a lot of people are buying investment properties in Canada. That's driving the price of a house in Canada up for everybody. And some politicians believe that foreign buyers were responsible by snapping up the supply of homes as investments. The um, campaign website of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said this year, the desirability of Canadian homes is attracting profiteers, wealthy corporations, and foreign investors. This is leading to a real problem of underused and vacant housing, rampant speculation, and sky and skyrocketing prices. Homes are for people, not investors. And that's what Canada seems poised to do. Now, I'm sure whether you've had a difficult time buying a house wherever you live, or whether it's you or a family member or a friend, you know someone that would like to live somewhere. Maybe it's New York, maybe it's New Jersey, maybe it's elsewhere. And they just can't afford it. They just cannot afford it. And I'm wondering, in places like New York that are faced with people that live there competing with foreigners that want to buy investment properties, is this a proposal that you think certain American communities should get behind? What do you think? 833 969 4447. We have a new number for tonight, so take note of it. 833 969 4447. If you like to spell out your numbers, uh, you can do so at Ted Wow Gigs. Ted Wow G I G S. Those of you that are holding, I'm going to get to you in a moment. But um, I just a tale of two countries, right? So that's what Canada is doing. Canada's banning foreign investment. You know what Japan is dealing with? Japan is having a very tough time. Japan has a whole problem with population. They have a whole problem with young people in Japan. And they're having a very tough time getting their rural populations 
their rural areas populated. So Japan is actually offering families in Tokyo 1 million yen per child. And don't get excited. That's not that much money. It's, uh, I mean, it's decent money. That's $7,640 per child to leave Tokyo, which is crowded and it's a bustling cosmopolitan metropolis, to leave Tokyo and relocate to a more rural location in a scheme aimed at halting depopulation of the countryside. So Japan is has this empty countryside, all this farmland that's sparsely populated, and what the government is literally doing is paying people to move there from Tokyo, especially if they have children. This is the latest in a series of incentives to stop a relentless influx to the capital because the population in Tokyo keeps growing. They've seen their population grow more than 16% in the last 20 years in spite of the fact that the population in Japan as a whole is going down. So the Japanese population is going down. The Tokyo population is going up. There's nobody in the countryside. So the Japanese government is saying, well, we want some kids there. We'll pay you. We'll pay you to move. So it's just so interesting to me the moves that these countries are making in terms of uh, dealing with their what they perceive to be their housing problems, their population problems, and the problems with who lives where. So uh, you're welcome to comment on Canada, Japan, or anything else we've covered. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Al from Manhattan. Hello, Al. Al? Al, I got you. All right, Al. Call back if you want. We're having some phone problems, so bear with us. Uh, 833-969-4447. What I like about this backup number is that uh, it works, which is nice. But I don't like that there's only four four lines, right? So I can't uh, – I like to have, you know, a full bank of 10 or 11 calls to choose from. But, uh, you know, I'd rather have four lines to choose from than none, which if we didn't have a backup number, which is, is where I'd be. Let me say hello to Tony from New Jersey. Hello there, Tony. Yes, Frank. Outstanding job. You did an outstanding interview with William Shatner. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Yes. And my wife, Nancy, she's spoken to you before. She does uh, – she likes science fiction and uh, Star Trek. She's really a Trekkie. She really uh, loves him. I'd, I'd like to get tickets to Red Bank, but you never put the date – the date or the time? Oh, the, uh, it's February 10th. February 10th is uh, Red Bank. February 11th is Englewood. I think it's around 730. Oh, okay. But the, the okay, de- all the details one. are on WilliamShatnerTour.com if you go to that website. Okay. Uh, I have one more thing to say. Uh, well, actually, two things. I spoke to you before about pizza a long time ago. Uh, I'm a native. I used to be a native of Staten Islander. And uh, I still have, you know, uh, a lot of feelings for Staten Island. But uh, I have an idea about the housing in New York. Uh, In Vermont, they have a a situation similar to New York where they have a lot of -of out-of-towners buying places in Vermont. But what they did is they taxed people more. 
If you're not a full-time resident of Vermont, you pay less taxes. But if you're say from you mean, Massachusetts, you mean if you if you are a full-time resident of Vermont, yeah, you, you pay less taxes. So if you are uh, from out of state and you buy a place in Vermont, say like you say once a month you go up there, you're going to pay a lot more in taxes. So that might be a a good way to raise taxes without hurting uh, uh, the New Yorkers. Yeah. And at the same time, you uh, might open uh, housing for people. Well, I, I think that's exactly the idea uh, between, you know, behind a, the idea of a, a pied-a-terre tax. And I think that's kind of what Canada has in mind. And thanks for the call there, uh, Tony. You know, I, I'll give you a, a perfect example. Cape May, New Jersey, for instance. My wife and I go on vacation there every year. If you own a house in Cape May, New Jersey, it is essentially like winning the lottery because it's – um. You can charge a fortune, especially post-pandemic. You could charge a fortune for people to stay there anywhere in the whole county. Any For a week, you could charge, depending on the house, obviously, and how many rooms, six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000. So let's say you're charging six or $7,000 a week during the uh, 12 weeks of summer, right, the summer-related months. I mean, you're making... $80,000 or more just on 12 weeks just from your house, right? So um, it, should you be able to – and now the other thing that they're dealing with there is the same thing that, uh, you know, that I mentioned with New York. Nobody that grew up in Cape May can afford to buy a house there. So the only folks that are actual residents of Cape May are older folks and people in the Coast Guard because there's a Coast Guard base there. So um, – these communities, whether it's Japan, whether it's Canada, I get what they're trying to deal with here. I get that they're trying to come up with new and creative approaches to new population problems. And I'm curious what people think of this Canadian solution to just ban foreign investment. You can't buy a house. Nope. Uh, you don't drive up the price of housing for the rest of the Canadians. I like, You know, sort of like I was saying with the Spanish cigarette butt idea, I give them credit for trying something new. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. I'm going to try again to connect with Al in Manhattan. Hello there, Al. Mr. Moreno, how are you doing? Okay? I'm doing well, Al. How are you? I'm doing good. I apologize about the phone. Listen, I wanted to say uh, I've been following you for the last couple of years. And uh, you interviewed Mr. Chapman, which just one of the very, very best. And i got to say, I can see the year from now, you're not so lovely yet. You know, you should be in every major market. Uh, you've honed your craft. They're excellent to hear. And uh, you let him unfold his story. And, you know, it's quite, quite well. Quite an achievement. Well, you know? uh, thank you, Al. I appreciate that. You, your phone is still a little difficult to hear. So I'm going to say just thank you. And uh, I appreciate you calling. And if you, people want to call, they can do so at 833-969-4447. we got a new number for today. 833-969-4447. You know, on the subject of real estate and whether foreigners should be able to buy real estate, I got a SMS text message here from, a, a, I don't know if it's a gentleman, but um, a person, a, a listener, and you can SMS text message me at 816-8-MORANO, who writes, uh, Hi, Frank, foreign nationals should not be allowed to own any real estate in the U.S., he goes on to say, or she, I don't, I don't know. Um, Chinese comp, Chinese P 
people and companies are buying properties to spy on us near military bases. Well, I'm not even talking about it from a spying perspective. I think what Canada's talking about and what that other gentleman was talking about with what Vermont is doing, it's just economic, right? In There are all these communities, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, for instance, uh, Cape May, New Jersey, you know, uh, New York City. Those are three very different communities. They all have in common that if you grew up there, unless you're a millionaire, you can't afford to live there. So the question is, what do you do about it? And the answer is, I don't know. 833-969-4447. One uh, open line if you want to comment. And um, I think that uh, this idea of what Canada is doing is interesting. I also think the idea of what uh, Japan is doing in terms of paying people to relocate to folks where they need more people is an interesting one. Because in, in some respects, not to bring everything back to New York, but in some respects, what Japan is going through is similar to what New York is going through, New York State. Because New York State, New York City is teeming with people. New York City is overrun with people. And New York State, it's like there are parts of upstate and western New York which are, uh, I hate to say it this way, but a vast, barren wasteland. There's nobody. You drive around for miles and it's just uh, people have fled. So I do wonder if folks in... New York State were to pay New York City residents to do what the folks in Japan are doing with the Tokyo. I don't know what a person from Tokyo is, a Tokyoan, what what they're doing with the Tokyoans to pay them to move to a rural community. I wonder how many New Yorkers would move. I have to think for that price, less than $8,000 per child, I have to think not many of them would move, honestly. Um, but I don't know. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. A gentleman who uh, is an authority on uh, many things related to both New York, Vermont, and who knows, probably Canada and Japan as well, is my old friend uh, Obi Murray. Hello, Obi. Frank. How are you, my How you friend? Doing? Good. Good. You and William, are you guys old, old buddies or what? <laughs> If we do cigars at the Carnegie Club, I'll be sure to invite you. Well, and by the way, how much did you pay him to say that? I'm just curious. <laughs> when, will, when will that check clear? That's, so. that's a good question. Piano tear tax? What are you thinking? You want tax? You want more money to go into government for them to spend? No, no, I don't. I just I wonder if um, you know if this idea of what Canada's doing in terms of prohibiting foreign investment. Whether that would drive the price of housing down for Americans that want to live in cities like New York? Actually, it would drive it up in New York. And it, here's why the foreigners you're talking about are buying which units in New York City? Well, luxury the condos, I guess. They're buying. The, and so who's, who, are they, who are they pricing out at this point? And that building, their price that they pay per square foot at that high floor lets the lower floors pay less also allows the 80-20 program, which allows lower-income people to be able to Mm. buy throughout the building. There's no separate door, no separate entrance, same entrance. They get get a lottery to get into those. And that's what helps pay for the building across the entire city. So, um, and I understand that, and I know that was a big uh, point locally when they were talking about the whole uh, fair share debate and uh, and, uh, 421A and that, that whole thing. 
Do you think this will work for Canada, though? Will prohibiting foreign uh, real estate purchases in Canada bring down the, ri- the, the price of housing up there? And the question becomes, who are those buyers? Much like we're talking about development here mm-hmm. in the city, which is very different than even Westchester and upstate. If the foreigners, are non-Canadians really, are buying properties that locals could buy, afford to buy, would buy and use and so forth, then there's a supply-demand issue. If you cut out some demand, then the supply, the pricing goes down and, and so forth. Um, but without answering that question, I couldn't tell you that. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Hey, and what about with the By gentleman? The way, don't forget, I've got the master's from NYU in real estate. So I've been back and forth in the real estate and the political world over the years. So it's not just fly by night in this conversation. I would never trust anyone that uh, that graduated from NYU in any in any circumstance. But um, uh, I know you spent some time in Vermont uh, as well. The other gentleman called oh, yeah. and talked about how um, people that live there full time they get to pay a much lower rate of, of tax than people who um, live there part-time or just have a rental uh, property there. Well, if, it's your, if it's your main residence, you pay one property tax. If it's, not your main, if it's not your residence, if you live in New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, anywhere, and you have a second home there, you then pay a higher real estate tax. That is correct. And uh, do you think that's a sound policy? I, I don't think it's, that sounds at all, because what happens there, too, is it hurts the construction industry. The housing up there, the housing stock, it's very old very quickly, because people are, have a disincentive to buy a second home. Really, what's happened since COVID is it, it's really picked up quite a bit. But there were places up there, Killington, for example, that saw a spike at one point and then came back down, and it's never recovered. And now so- it's come back because of demand from COVID, where everybody is trying to get out of the cities, out of Boston, out of New York. And go where they used to go one weekend a month or maybe a couple weekends a month. They bought the place and are there all the time in the winter and, of course, in the summer then, too. So, Obi, what do you think, uh, whether whether we're talking, obviously, these are very different communities, but whether we're talking places like Cape May, New Jersey, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, um, you know, the other boroughs largely in New York City, where folks really can't afford to buy a house or even an apartment in a community that they grew up with, what's the solution? If you're a young guy like uh, like Kenneth here, for instance, who uh, doesn't want to leave behind his family, his friends, the community that he grew up with, but would like to buy a house and doesn't want to have to go to the Carolinas or Arizona, what's the solution for someone like that? Where we grew up, don't forget, I grew up in Westchester. Same problem. Any community generally has that problem. Houses increase in value. And by the time you, you grow up from 10 to 25, over that 15 years, you get your salary, and whatever job you might have starting out, that starting salary, you can't buy the house right away. And you have to save up your 20%. And if you don't save up 20%, you can't necessarily put a down payment down. You didn't find other mortgages. That's what led to the mortgage crisis. There's a certain number of people based upon income in this country that can afford a mortgage. When you go above that line, you start getting into mortgages that are uh, less pure, as you might say. Gotcha. All right. Hey, Obi. No no income verification. I appreciate the insight very much, my friend. Uh, We'll get you in studio again soon, okay? Anytime. Love it. Thank you. 833-969-4447 or Ted Wow Gigs. That's Ted Wow Gigs. Uh, or uh, a bunch of other. That's the best one, I think, in terms of spelling out the phone number. Ted Wow Gigs. Let me say hello to the inimitable Tom from the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yes, hello, Tom. Hello. Hello, Tom. 
Yeah, I, I like to say that maybe the maybe like a place like Canada or Japan or wherever they should have invested towns, meaning that they can have a whole town they could build to their heart's content and invest money in those towns and not bother the people that that are trying to buy a house in other towns. All right. Okay, Tom, thank you. They're putting that out there. I can't argue with that. Uh, I'm not sure I followed completely what he was saying, which is why I can't necessarily argue with it, but whatever works. All right, 833-969-4447. We're going to go through the mail in a little bit. If you want to email me and uh, have your letter potentially read, uh, you can do so at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. this song. This song is over 20 years old. Still as, as relevant today as it was when it came out uh, in 2000 or 2001. A great song. Beyonce knows. Crazy enough. Alright. Uh, without further ado, uh, for those of you that prefer the written word to calling. By the way, you can call in at uh, 833-969-4447. But for those of you that prefer the written word, you can email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com and for those of you who uh, enjoy communicating that way, you can do so um, right now. Letters. Oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out. Those letters. I love those letters. Jeanette writes, uh, I, I don't know what this was in response to, quite frankly, but the subject is long time ago, 
Uh, she writes, I wake up every morning with a name that I'm sure has nothing to do with who I am. A slave name of European origin. People unlike you, who has a town in Italy that acknowledges your family linkage. But yet, as far as you're concerned, it took place a long time ago. I wear the scars every day. I uh, I think that was probably in response to me not being in favor of uh, reparations. Because then Jeanette went on to add, uh, when it, we were doing the Romeo and Juliet discussion... She said, a movie, Are You Stupid? Just goes to show how ignorant you are. Comparing a movie to the brutality of slavery, you are a racist. You're of Italian descent, and Italians were very involved in the race riots against foundational African Americans. African Americans' inheritance was completely destroyed due to free labor, and it's time to address this issue. I don't care how you think about reparations, because you will not have the final say. You're full of yourself and not the authority of anything except your family. Well, if you listen to my wife, uh, Jeanette, I don't even have a lot of authority in that area either. All right. Hi, honey. (laughs) Bob writes, hi, Frank. Watching Sopranos opening last night, always impressed as Tony is driving and crunching on that cigar. If there had never been a Sopranos... And you were approached with your mob knowledge by a show creator. Would you ever be interested in such a part? Instant stardom. Hey, if Sid Rosenberg can do it, why not you? My wife says you might be a ham, but isn't that how actors begin? Getting discovered. Thanks for great radio. I can see you in that opening scene over and over before every episode. I'll tell you, Bob. Um, no, I mean, that's I, I, not some, that's not a role I could pull off. You know, I... Um, you know, Tony, James Gandolfini is a great actor, not just when he plays Tony Soprano, but he's great in everything that he's done. But Tony Soprano and the kind of the Tony Soprano tough guy uh, role is, is a, not a role that I'd be well suited for. First of all, I'm not really I'm not an actor. I don't think uh, I would capture that. I, I'm one of the least aggressive people that there is, one of the least confrontational people that there that there is. I, uh, I uh, you know, uh, so I don't think I would be a good fit. For that role. I think uh, James Gandolfini, I'll leave the mob parts to people like James Gandolfini and Sid Rosenberg. I think the only part that I could play convincingly might be radio talk show host. All right. This is from Friday. Joe writes, subject, rude call screener. Frank, tell your screener to suck my blank. I call up and I am rude? You met me, and if some effing blank blank is going to put words in my mouth, I'm gone. You don't have to worry about the blank blanks in New York City. You will have me beating the blank. I wish I would have had the uh, the uh, tone ready, right? That uh, bleep ready. Uh, you will have me bleeping, beating the bleep out of your screener. Getting sick of the bull blank on your station... Blank your blank call mother blank screener. I've been calling up disrespecting you. I don't call. I am the silent listener. Blank holes. I have been in radio over 45 years. And your guy tells me I am disrespectful to you after I volunteered to help you at your next New Year's Eve Eve party? I'm sending a letter to John. Sure. I buy you, Saki, no problem. 
but blank your piece of blank screener. Been in the food business a long time, too. Who the blank is this guy? If you side with him, blank you, too. Sure, a professional operation. Who is this guy to pass judgment on me when he doesn't even know me? Not a happy camper. Want a piece of me? I'm here. Your screener is a blanking blank bag. Blank him. Over chess. I'm turning you off. Listen to George Nori. Wow. I'll tell you, I did meet this fellow, Joe. Struck me as a pretty nice guy. And um, and he did buy me a bottle of uh, of sake when we went to Mount Fuji up in uh, Rockland. He, wow. sa- he has sent a bottle of sake to the restaurant. Kenneth, uh, I don't know what's going on here. What did you do to this poor guy? I'm going to allow you an opportunity to address this. I'm not hearing you if you're talking. I got no idea, Frank. This guy can go take a hike. Wow. I don't know. So far, uh, he's got a lot more detail in his complaint about you than you have in your response. So I think I have to go with him so far. What the blank, Frank? My goodness. All right. This is uh, an email from uh, Claudia. Not my sister, uh, but uh, another Claudia. Hi, Frank. I'm a new listener. For many years, I was an Art Bell fan. And stayed with that station for many years. I finally became so fed up with the new host and his lack of critical thinking. I just had to change the channel. That's when I found you. I loved Jay Diamond. When the station canceled him, I was furious. I literally called up the station and questioned why he was canceled. They told me he was too far to the left and was a different direction than they wanted the station to go. I can't believe that you mentioned Jay and Rush in the same breath. I'm older than you, and I remember the day when politics was civilized. Nobody knew what political party one was affiliated with. Maybe one would glance at a neighbor's newspaper and have an idea, but there wasn't the division and hatred that is in our country now, thanks to Rush. Yes, newspapers. One would actually have to read. Now there's no need to read and only listen and become indoctrinated by some fool. Papers were a magical tool as they opened the mind to other realities going on in the world. In conclusion, I would stop what I was doing and turn on the radio when Jay was on. I found Rush hateful and believe he is a cause damage to our country. Sincerely, Claudia. Well, look, I think we part company on uh, Rush Limbaugh. I'm not going to get into whether he fomented division or anything like that. I'm just talking about his abilities as a storyteller and entertainer and as someone that could connect with people on a visceral level. And I think there, there was nobody better than Rush Limbaugh, um, except maybe Jay Diamond. Jay is incredible, incredible. And, um, you know, one of, uh, one of the things Jay said to me, you know, Jay and I didn't speak for a couple of years. And a few months ago, I just kind of called him out of the blue. And uh, I figured, you know, let me see if he'll talk to me. And he did. And we had a great conversation and we've rekindled our, um, you know, our relationship. And he said to me uh, the day before Christmas, I was talking to him as I was driving home because he's nocturnal. And so I can call him as I'm driving home. And uh, he said to me, you know, honestly, the greatest Christmas gift that you've given me is getting back in touch with me and reconnecting. And it really meant a lot to me uh, because that's the way I feel. And um, when I get to have these you know, 45-minute to hour-long phone conversations with Jay on the ride home, I feel I'm like I'm almost getting a private radio show. And I got to tell you, he's just as smart and just as quick-witted as ever. So I agree with you on Jay. And, you know, as far as Rush goes, we'll have to agree to disagree. See, um, I told you so. <laughs> Walter writes on the subject of the McCarthy concessions. Frank, 
Any chance we'll ever know the true nature of concessions McCarthy made to buy the holdout votes? Do you think the average citizens comprehend what went on here? Thanks, Walt in South Carolina. It's a great question, Walt. Congress is not known for keeping secrets, honestly, so I suspect you will have a lot of the disgruntled Republicans who are unhappy with this person getting a committee assignment or that person getting a committee assignment. Um, I will. I suspect you'll hear a lot of them complaining about what went on, but you're right. I don't think uh, for a lot of these under-the-table deals we'll ever know what went on. And no, I don't think the citizens know, which is one of the reasons we're going to talk about this with Joe Lieberman in, a, in about an hour. Um... Save that for later. Uh, Doug emails, stop sounding like a hillbilly. That's the subject of the email. You know, whenever you get an email with um, with that as the subject, <laughs> it's not going to be, Frank, you're doing such a great job. Frank, you know, can you give me your opinion on welfare reform? It's going to be it's going to be something insulting. Right. So let's see what it is. Stop sounding like a hillbilly. There is no Q in coupon. Same oo in routine and gray poupon. Thanks, Doug. Or should we say Doug? So, yeah, I guess he's saying it's coupon, not coupon. You know what? I like coupon. I, I realize it's coupon. Tough. I like coupon. You don't uh, You don't like coupon? Tough. That's the fact, Jack. Joyce writes yesterday on the subject of board games. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank, for inspiring me to try to figure out how to sell a game I created. We've had Joyce on the show. She's a medium. She says, uh, thank you, Frank, for inspiring me to try to figure out how to sell a game I created called Clairvoyance. Not sure how to protect it if I send it directly to a game company or if I need an agent, etc. In any case, thank you for inspiring me to do something about this. Joyce. Yeah, Joyce, I don't know either, honestly. I think uh, the first thing you should do is probably copyright the name and the concept, but uh, this is not something I know anything about, honestly. Um, On the subject of Curtis's leftovers, which I believe are still in the refrigerator, Linda writes, Hi, Frank. I would just put the leftovers (laughs) in the refrigerator with a note to Curtis, letting him know that he left them out. He could have just forgotten to put them in the refrigerator. I would write the note because he might think that he, in fact, put them in the refrigerator himself. All is well. Hope all's well with you and yours. Another great show, Linda. Yeah, I did text Curtis uh, to let him know that I put them in the refrigerator. No response. So I I guarantee you he's not too worked up about it. Uh, This is an email from another Frank from Canada, Ontario, Canada. Frank, Kenneth Kenneth left me. uh, See, another Kenneth complainer. Kenneth is the real villain of this program. He's replaced uh, Alex Barnard, whose popularity has skyrocketed. Since uh, he stopped playing live stream crimes on this show. Um, Kenneth left me hanging on commenting, re-Aaron young lady Burnett. I agree it was a total insult, doubled down when he referred to CNN as the Clinton News Network. Well, I said that. I said that, and so did Alex. I had a problem. Of course he had a problem. I had a problem with your comment on Republicans appearing on CNN, and I'll include MSNBC. Over the four years of Trump, invites aplenty went to Republicans who wouldn't show up. The common phrase, we asked congressmen whomever to respond or come on our show, but they were no-shows. You seem to cover for Republicans when you can, Frank. I do enjoy your show, but not your bias. Seems to be keeping with WABC generally. All right. 
You know, it, you would be amazed at how many emails I get which accuse me of um, bias either towards Republicans or towards Democrats, that I'm a real lefty or I'm a real righty, I, 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 whatever. I, I'm, I, I, I'm just me, right? Let the chips fall where they may. All right. Hey, this is interesting. Uh, this is from Anna. Dear Frank, remember when stars used to send 8 by 10 glossies to fans? I think a photo of you would be a much nicer prize than a hat or a T-shirt. Not an 8 by 10 photo, but maybe a 5 by 7 Frank Morano photo. You could have one of Frank Morano smoking a cigar, Frank Morano in Atlantic City, Frank Morano and Rachel, Frank Morano and Carmine at the baseball game, Frank Morano with former radio celebrities, Frank Morano with various politicians. The possibilities are endless. Or... You could have Frank Morano baseball cards. Slap a little lamination on them with a tiny WABC logo in the corner, and there you have it, a collectible series. Much more interesting than a hat or a T-shirt. And I actually love this idea. I would love to do that. I'll be honest, I'm not sure how many people really want one. I just, I, I, I have to think it's less than a 1,000, right? But uh, who knows? But I'll suggest that to the powers that be. I do think that's a fun idea. Zero point. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> and um, I do also, I, I do want to do those collectible NFTs th- th- and sell them for $100 a piece. I will even sell mine for $50 a piece, these NFT trading cards with all the scenarios that you just outlined. But um, I don't think I'm a, a big enough star yet to to have people do that. So if you want to help me. Point. <laughs> be Zero. marketable enough to sell those NFT trading cards. The best thing you could do, I think, is follow me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. And follow me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right. Uh, this woman writes on the subject of cigarette butts. I recall someone dropping their cigar butt, which then started a fire at their mom's house. Not exactly. Not exactly. Well, I'm going to save that story for another day because it's a little more complicated than you made it sound. That's not exactly what happened. I was certainly not littering. Really? Another person writes, um, "Love, uh, hi, hi, Frank, your interview with William Shatner was outstanding. Absolutely terrific. I was so happy for you when he asked you if you would consider joining him on stage. I really think it is going to happen. William Shatner obviously respects your work just as much as you respect his work. Enjoy the moment. I truly believe that you'll be sharing the stage with Mr. Shatner. Great show. Uh, Fred Fred writes, and this is a good question, and it's one I don't have an answer to. But uh, if someone does have an answer, they can uh, email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, and I'll pass this on to uh, Fred. Subject, VCR DVD player. Hi, Frank. Do you know where I can buy new VCR and DVD players without going through Amazon? Bought one from them and had nothing but trouble. Thanks, Frank. So, Fred, I don't, uh, but I'm sure somebody who's hearing this will. And I'll add, this is a Frank Morano original request. I would love to purchase a laser disc player and get some old school laser discs. I always wanted a laser disc player. I'd love to get like a combination laser disc and DVD player. If anyone knows where I can get an affordable laser disc DVD player, meaning both. Laser to send DVDs. Let me know that as well. Um, so that's that. Big thank you to David in the Bronx who informs me that uh, the proper description for someone from Tokyo is Tokyoite. Tokyoite. So thank you, David. 
Uh, all right. Um, let's see if we can squeeze in one more here. Uh, Lawrence writes, hi, Frank. Um, subject, who would you recommend? Hi, Frank. Assuming Sid was eager to have anybody to share the six to ten time slot, and he left it to you, Frank, to decide, who on the planet would you think would be the best choice to replace Bernie? Thanks for your response on the year. Best wishes, Lawrence. I've said this before. I think Bernie is irreplaceable. And, um, you know, it's radio partnerships are not like just snapping your fingers and you say, oh, well, this person's smart. This person's funny. Let's let's plop him in there and see how well they do. I don't think it works that way. The reason that the Bernie and Sid show was so successful and other radio partnerships as well, um, you know, uh, Mike and the Mad Dog, uh, Scott and Todd, uh, Curtis and Kuby, Clavin and Finch. These take years, years to build that degree of chemistry. You can't just plop someone in there. And honestly, I think Sid sounds great on his own. And uh, look, the numbers that uh, he did in the month of December, he's doing great. He's uh, one of the most listened to shows in New York. And he out, he's outpacing the station when the station is doing great. So I think uh, I don't think Sid needs a co-host, honestly. I will F your ass up. <laughs> Thank you, Bernie. I miss you, brother. Um, all right. Uh, I think we'll probably end it there. If you want to comment on anything that we have uh, that we've covered thus far, you can do so. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Uh, if you didn't get your letter heard, you can email me and perhaps it will be heard on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A uh, bunch of people uh, eager to talk about the uh, story I raised at the top of the hour uh, when um, we were talking about Canada prohibiting most foreign purchases of homes. Here's Tom Story, who's a uh, sales representative from Royal LePage Signature Realty. He talked about this new rule banning foreigners from buying in Canada. Well, I think we're going to actually find out now how much effect it will have because the finger has been pointed for many years at non-resident buyers for one of the main reasons why prices across Canada have gone up. And I think if you asked 
any Canadian home buyer right now that's trying to purchase a property, hey, you know, if we could eliminate some competition that isn't even a resident here, would you like us to? I think pretty much everybody would say yes, mm -hmm. right? Um, most of the numbers recently has come up. We think maybe it's less than 5% of all the purchases across Canada, but we're now going to find out actually if it's going to make a big decrease in the market in terms of prices not going up as fast as they have. I think there's a whole lot of other factors in 2023 that frankly are going to have more of an impact on the market mm -hmm. than this ban's going to have. There you go. Uh, we'll see. You know who else is Canadian? William Shatner. And Shatner is, um, has, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think he's ever become a U.S. citizen. So uh, the next time he's on, which I hope will be soon, I'm going to ask him about that. I mean, clearly he's been in the country for more than 60 years. Why wouldn't you get dual citizenship at this point? Why don't you just uh, become an American citizen? Clearly he lives here, must like it, does well here professionally. So I wonder I, – I, I, uh, I'm sorry that I didn't have time to get into that. I had pages of questions. To, to get to. We didn't even scratch the surface, so hopefully it'll come back soon. Speaking of Canada, Tom is in Toronto. Hello there, Tom. Yeah, hello. Hello, Tom. What's on your mind? Well, by the way, next to Trump uh, having the election stolen, I think the, tra the greatest tragedy for the U.S. was we are not becoming mayor of New York. I was very sad when I heard that. Would have been just terrific if you won. But um, in any case, as far as the... Uh, the Toronto uh, uh, situation here and the Canadian situation, can you hear me? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, great. As far as the situation up here, it's a double uh, whammy. Uh, the one uh, that you mentioned already, but in addition to that, in a city like Toronto, what they have now is um, they're calling it, the, I think it's the vacancy tax, uh, basically. And what that means is that if you um, don't live here at that particular uh, property, uh, your residence, for six months or more each year, you have to pay a tax of 1% of the actual total value of the property. So, you know, the prices are through the roof on these properties, just like in New York. You may have had it, you know, decades because of family, what have you. But all of a sudden, you're there, you know, five and a half months only. Uh, you're looking at a 1% tax on the total value of that thing. So it could be a million bucks, 1%, you know, 10, what is that, 10,000? I mean, we're talking about a crazy amount, and it's annual. So you've got to be doing this every single year, the registration. Otherwise, you face the tax. So, you know, it's a double whammy there. Well, yeah, it, I, I can understand that, uh, Tom. So do you, are you a homeowner up there? Yes, I am. <laughs> Plus and minuses to that. Plus and minuses. But I am absolutely yes, and that's one of the things. Uh, we've got a deadline coming up February, uh, what is it, 2nd, where we have to register, or there's just a $250 fine for being late in registry. Oh. So, you know, it's not uh, easy to live up here and own homes. Oh, by the way, you're a great history buff. I'd mention a terrific documentary for you, uh, Frank. It's called The Greatest Story Never Told. Never Told. I think you'd really enjoy that. Um, what, is, what is it about? Oh, I, I don't want to uh, give away the surprise. You know what spoilers are, right? Okay, fair <laughs> enough. It's about right. history. I think you'll love it. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate, the, uh, I appreciate the call and the recommendation. I'll check it out. You know what it is? I, um, my time to watch things is so limited now that um, I, I have to be so selective with what I end up watching. There was a time when I could watch a motion picture or a documentary every day. And I used to do that, actually. Um, you know, would rarely watch TV programs, but I'd get the DVDs from Netflix and watch one a day. And almost, maybe six days a week. Now, I'm lucky if I watch one a month. So I have to be very selective with, you know, what I, what I spend this time on. So 
I'm going to research this and see uh, because that's the worst thing is you spend your time investing in watching something and then it's just okay. It's just mediocre. All right. Um, eight three three. We got a new number today. Take note of this. Eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. That's eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. Coming up next hour. A lot to get to. There is a um, there's a big discussion about social media's impact on the brain, not only for adults, but especially for minors. So there's some new data out and there's a new proposal for how social media should be handled among young people. We'll get into it in uh, in just a bit and uh, a whole lot of other things. Uh, Joe Lieberman joining us next hour. We'll get his take on what's happening in the country as well. You can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. In the meantime, until next hour, in the words of uh, the great Barry Farber, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to talk with uh, former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman in about 20 minutes. Over the last year and a half or so, one of my consistent themes has been the loss of civility in our country and the danger of increased polarization in our country. And those are a few of the issues I'm going to raise with Joe Lieberman in just a bit. Let me say this. One of the things that I think is universal throughout the history of not only American society, but I think the history of human civilization is the current generation of adults will find some way to say, ah, these kids today and whatever the activity that those kids today are engaging in those older folks, meaning just, you know, adults, their parents, basically, will always find a way to dismiss and talk about it as harmful. In the 20s and the 30s, I suspect that it was radio. In the 1950s, it was television, right? In the 60s, it was talking on the phone. In um, the the 70s and 80s, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was, uh, I don't know, it was something else. In the 90s, it was the Internet. And today, a lot of what you hear older folks lamenting is how video games and especially social media will rot their brains. So I'm trying not to buy wholly into the concept that social media is rotting the brains of young people. Because 
I feel like you there's just a natural part of what every generation goes through. That being said, the more data that comes out about what social media is doing to all of our brains, especially young people, the more frightening I think it is. And I don't think that what you're hearing is some sort of uh, is the usual generational lament of, oh, these kids today with their rock and roll music and they're the Facebook and their friendsters and MySpace. I think it's more to it than that. Fascinating new study by neuroscientists at the University of North Carolina. They tried something new. They conducted successive brain scans of middle school students between the ages of 12 and 15, which is a period, very important, a period of especially rapid brain development. This is what they found. Listen to this. The researchers found that the children who habitually checked their social media feeds at around age 12 showed a distinct trajectory with their sensitivity to social rewards from peers heightening over time, meaning they cared more about what other kids thought about them. Teenagers with less engagement in social media followed the opposite path, with a declining interest in social rewards. So this is a study that was published um, a couple of days ago in the Journal of American, the uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, and it's among the first attempts to capture changes to brain function correlated with social media use over a period of years. Now the study has some important limitations. The authors acknowledge that because adolescence is a period of expanding social relationships, the brain differences could reflect a natural pivot towards peers, which could be driving more frequent social media use. Eva tells her, maybe we'll invite her on the show, but she says we can't make casual claims that social media is changing the brains. But, she added, teens who are habitually checking their social media are showing these pretty dramatic changes in the way their brains are responding, which could potentially have long-term consequences well into adulthood, sort of setting the stage for brain development over time. A a team of researchers studied an ethnically diverse group of 169 students in the 6th and 7th grade from a middle school in rural North Carolina, and they split them into groups according to how often they reported checking Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat feeds. And at around age 12, the students already showed distinct patterns of behavior. Habitual users reported checking their feeds 15 or more times a day. Moderate users checked between 1 and 14 times. And non-habitual users checked less than once a day. The subjects received full brain scans three times at approximately one-year intervals as they played a computerized game that delivered rewards and punishment in the form of smiling or scowling peers. While carrying out the task, the frequent checkers showed increasing activation of three brain areas. These were the three. Reward processing circuits, which also respond to experiences like winning money or risk-taking behavior. Brain regions with uh, that determine salience, picking out what stands out in the environment. And the prefrontal cortex, 
which helps with regulation and control. And the results showed that teens who grow up checking social media more often, they're becoming hypersensitive to feedback from their peers. Now, I think that's pretty frightening. Yet these findings don't capture the magnitude of the brain changes, only their trajectory. It's unclear whether the changes are beneficial or harmful because, look, you can argue that if you're more sensitive to what your peers are thinking, maybe you'll be less likely to engage in antisocial behavior. Social sensitivity could be adaptive, showing that teenagers are learning to connect with others. Or it could lead to social anxiety and depression if social needs are not met. And that was the sentence when I read this story about this study that reminded me of an interview in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago from uh, that, that Jonathan Haidt, the, uh, or, uh, the uh, famous psychologist at NYU, did with the Wall Street Journal. And that issue, social anxiety and depression, that was an issue that Jonathan Haidt, who spent a lot of time researching these generations, has focused on. The, um, he's 59 years old. Jonathan Haidt. He is a young baby boomer. And he is very worried about Generation Z. Not worried about millennials. He's worried about Generation Z. That is uh, people that that are usually defined as being born between 1997 and 2012. This is what he told the journal. When you look at Americans born after 1995... What you find is that they have extraordinarily high rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide, and fragility. There has never been a generation this depressed, anxious, and fragile. So that was before this study from the University of North Carolina came out. Jonathan Haidt was already saying that. And he attributes this to the combination of social media and a culture that emphasizes victimhood. And uh, he wrote a book that I didn't read, but I did read excerpts of called The Coddling of the American Mind. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And his present um, obsession, Jonathan Haidt, is social media. He's working on two books that address its harmful impact on American society. One is called Kids in Space, Why Teen Mental Health is Collapsing, and another is Life After Babel, Adapting to a World We Can No Longer Share. Now, think about that. You remember the Tower of Babel, right? That's what that's about. Um, Height imagines literally launching our children into outer space and letting their bodies grow there. They would come out deformed and broken. Their limbs wouldn't be right. You can't physically grow up in outer space. Human bodies can't do that. Yet, according to Height, we basically do that to them socially. We launched them into outer space around the year 2012, and then we expect that they will grow up normally without having normal human experiences. And Height's research, confirmed by that of others, shows that depression rates started to rise all of a sudden around 2013, especially for teen girls. But it's only Generation Z, not the older generations. If you stopped collecting data in 2011, according to him, you'd see little change from previous years. By 2015, it's an epidemic. 
And this data is all available publicly. You can look it up. In fact, I'm going to link to this uh, Jonathan Haidt interview in the uh, Wall Street Journal because there's a lot that we're not going to cover here uh, in the interest of time. But I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page, and you could read it, facebook.com slash Fan. So what happened in 2012, when the oldest Generation Z babies were in their middle teens, that was the year Facebook acquired Instagram and young people flocked to Instagram. It was also the beginning of the selfie era. Apple's iPhone 4, released in 2010, had the first front-facing camera, which was even more improved in the iPhone 5, which was introduced just a couple of years later. Social media and selfies hit a generation that led uh, an overprotected childhood in which the age at which children were allowed outside on their own by parents had risen, and remember, this is an issue we've covered at length, from the norm of previous generations, 7 or 8, to 10 or 12. Think about that, right? So right around the time that younger people were being essentially hooked on Instagram and social media in general, that was around the same time that the age that parents were letting their children do things outside on their own it, it raised the age raised on average, according to him, from seven or eight to between 10 and 12. And so that meant that the first social media generation was one of what he describes as weakened kids who hadn't practiced the skills of adulthood in a low stakes environment with other children. They were deprived of the normal toughening, the normal strengthening, the normal anti fragility. Before 2010, teenagers had flip phones. They, they'd text each other and say, let's meet down at the mall. They would do things together. Now, their childhood is largely just through the phone. They no longer even hang out together in person. Teenagers even drive less than earlier generations did. And Haidt is especially worried about girls. And I'll just mention this one statistic and then one idea, and then we'll take your calls. And if you want to comment on this, 833 969 Four 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 seven. We've got a new number for tonight. 833-969-4447. Um, he's worried about girls. By 2020, more than 25% of female teenagers had, quote, a major depression. Think about that. One out of four teenage girls, not mild depression, major depression. The comparable number for boys, just under 9%. And now the comparable number for millennials at the same age registered at half the Generation Z rate. And everyone loves to beat up on millennials, right? But what Height points out is that there are a lot of millennials that you could point to who've been incredibly successful in a large variety of sectors. When it comes to Generation Z, really the only Generation Zers that you can really point to are, um, are not American. That uh, you know, that are having an impact worldwide. Um, so what he is saying, what he is suggesting, is that one of the things that needs to be done, and I'll tell you, after looking at this uh, this uh, study from the University of North Carolina, I've kind of come to this same conclusion. What he is suggesting is that the age at which people should be considered adults for use of um, the internet and social media sites. It should be uh, 16 years of age. And uh, I'll be honest, I think uh, I think there's something to that. He wants to raise the age of Internet adulthood 
to 16 and enforce it. Right now, 13-year-olds can legally sign up for social media sites. And millions of much younger children use them, even though they're not 13. They just lie about their birthdays. I had a cousin that did this. Uh, The Internet teaches them that all you have to do is lie, and you can go anywhere. That's essentially what we've taught children so far. So uh, I find this study on uh, how social media has changed children's brains very alarming. I found this interview with Jonathan Haidt very interesting. And I, uh, I think this suggestion of raising the age of Internet adulthood to 16 and actually enforcing it, I think it, I think it actually could do some, some good. 833-969-4447 if you want to comment. Four open lines now. New number for today. And I saw there was some, someone on hold and they hung up while I was ranting. So if they want to call back on uh, the Shatner discussion or anything else, they're welcome to. 833-969-4447. Alex Barnard is here, who has a, a song, actually, about this, live stream crimes. Yes, that's right. And you can download it on any of your favorite streaming platforms. Um, I got to say, I think he's. I think this guy, Jonathan Heights, blowing this a little bit out of proportion. Um, while I will say I don't think social media is necessarily a good thing, especially for young kids developing minds and uh, anything like that. I do think that the reason why you're seeing more diagnoses of depression, anxiety, it's sort of like what happened with ADHD or ADD, for example. You were, It's not because you're seeing more kids being depressed. It's just because there's a new... Uh, view of mental health now whereby more people are getting diagnosed Mm. you know i mean there's plenty of people who i think would benefit you know from older generations like like my dad for example who would have benefited from a diagnosis of depression or definitely adhd um because otherwise they don't function that well you know on their own i mean they learn to function they learn to cope but they would be so much better off with a diagnosis. And I think it's the same thing, too, with how the diagnoses are affecting uh, women and girls. A lot of the times when it comes to mental health, um, when people are coming up with the, di- with the diagnoses that are used in the DSM, um, they often kind of overlooked uh, diagnosing women because it is different than diagnosing men. Uh, well, I think that's all. I think that you've raised a very good point, and obviously, there's no way for me to, you know, know if that's true or not. If part of this is just due to uh, looking for things that were already present but just not being diagnosed, there was there was a very interesting documentary that I saw not long ago called "The Social Dilemma," in which they talk about, including insiders from these social media companies, that so much of the design of the software itself and the algorithms. It's designed just to keep people on social media using different triggers that uh, light up different areas of their brain. And I, I do think that 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 kind of confessions from those social media whistleblowers, coupled with this University of North Carolina study, it does uh, it does say to me that maybe that uh, I don't know, maybe that we are changing children's brains and it is having some effect. But look, there's no way. For me to disprove uh, what you're what you're saying at all? No, I mean, look, I, do I think that uh, little kids should be using social media? No, absolutely not. I think that 
you know, there should be some safeguards put in place to keep kids under a certain age away from social media because it is harmful. They you can they can be susceptible to all kinds of bullying. There's a lot of uh, peer pressure that can that can go on online now that is is really really harmful to kids. Are you Generation Z? What year are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm Generation Z. You're in the heart of of what we're talking about and, here, pretty and much. Yeah. Al, not even that too, but just the fact that that kids I feel like are so much more on their phones rather than socializing in person and hanging out with friends. Yeah. they'd rather do it over text or talk over Instagram DM. And it really is too addicting. Like, even for myself, I was telling Matt before, like, I deleted Instagram for a time because I just found myself on it subconsciously way too much. Like, I'd open up my phone, scroll over to where the app was, even though I had already deleted it without even wow, realizing. That's just why. muscle memory. Yeah, that's no, why. I mean, I'm crazy addicted it's, to it's my It's absurd. Phone. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. same thing with TikTok. I deleted that for a while because of the same reason. You're on it for so many hours at a time that it's it's honestly toxic you you absolutely are no and i am you know, for sure it's it's it is a problem yeah. and even the, to your point you know as an adult the one day that i abstain from electronics saturday i do find myself constantly wondering what am i missing right by not checking my email by not going on social media forgetting about the news but just wanting to know what who's trying to get in touch with me what's going on and um th- that's as an adult i can't imagine as your brain is still developing what that constant bombardment uh, of all this stimuli does to your brain. So, uh, look, I don't think that there's an easy answer there. But just to finish one other aspect of this Wall Street Journal article, the um, the thing that some people are noticing about the American workforce is the anxiety and the fragility at the youthful end of the workforce, namely people like Alex and Kenneth. According to some managers, it's making the labor force troublesome to work with. This is a quote from Jonathan Haidt. This is something I hear from a lot of managers, that it's very difficult to supervise their Generation Z employees, that it's very difficult to give them feedback, that it makes it hard for them to advance professionally by learning to do their jobs better. At the same time, social media promotes this organizational culture of fear. If corporations become less effective because everyone's afraid of Twitter, afraid of what will be said about them, this could severely damage, this is a quote from Jonathan Haidt, not me, American capitalism. When managers are afraid to speak up honestly because they'll be shamed on Twitter or Slack, then that organization becomes stupid. And Jonathan Haidt says he's seen a lot of this beginning in colleges and universities starting about seven years ago. They all got stupid in the same way. They all implemented policies that uh, that backfire. Um, you know, that whole idea of the Twitter mob is something that I think has had a whole tremendous ripple effect throughout society. And I do wonder if there's something to be said there. Now, unlike the brain issue that we were talking about, there's no data backing that up here. That's just Jonathan Haidt's observation. Uh, 833-969-4447 if you want to comment. That's 833-969-4447. Really quick, I did want to say one last thing. I think the the one thing that is really good, and this was from my own personal experience, um, to kind of get kids away from the phones, if that is something that parents are worried about, 
send them to a camp, a, like a sleepaway camp. I went to a sleepaway camp when I um when I was a teenager um in Maine for two months, and they take away your phone. Um, and that was really good for me. I was never really, I, and I'm not super addicted to my phone, but I I play around on it a lot. But it, that was really a great way for me to disconnect. Well, that's good advice, and we like Maine. They have ranked choice voting up there. So it's a great state and good lobster. John is from uh, Freehold, New Jersey. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Um, I just wanted to say I think uh, I agree with this guy because I have a sister who uh, just entered high school. And she's literally like a baby. Like she has, I would compare, like the mind of like a fifth, sixth grader. And I can't believe she's going to be like driving the car soon. But I think the whole um, the whole aspect of adulthood, I think, has shifted. Like, you know, in the older in the old old days, eighteen hundreds, whenever at thirteen you were an adult, you were gonna have babies, this that, and then like uh, at our parents, like, I'm generation um, Y, not Z. Uh, I was born nineteen ninety. So like my parents' uh, generation, it was uh, you know move out of the house at eighteen, get married in like your early twenties, and have kids. And then my generation, it's like move out of the house at like 20-something, get married at like late 20s, early 30s. I think um, because maybe we're living longer, that uh, adulthood kind of shifted and you don't really become a full adult till like, I guess now for Generation Z, it might be in their 20s. Well, that's in, that, all interesting observations, uh, John. I appreciate that. I, I have to run here. You brought up a lot of interesting points which we'll revisit either later today or in future shows as well. But I, uh, I thought this, both of these two stories were so interesting. And uh, that's why I thought that they, um, even though they were unre- uh, unrelated, they were related. So I thought it was interesting. Senator Joe Lieberman joins us next. We'll talk about what's happening in Congress, what's happening in this country, and where we're going as a country. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You want to comment on anything we're talking about, 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Senator Joe Lieberman joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. together and get it done. Do what's right for America. 
This is the other side of midnight. And yes, Virginia speaker and New York, New Jersey and all the other states of the union. It's quite an interesting week last week as we all got quite a lesson in civic affairs. And I think C-SPAN did probably the greatest ratings they've done since two impeachments ago. But where do we go from here and have the seeds of division that seem to be sown by polarization? Is that something that is obviated now that there is a working majority and the speaker has finally been elected? Well, somebody that knows a thing or two about polarization and how Washington works is former U.S. Senator from Connecticut, former Democratic nominee for vice president and a a man who has a resume longer than we can list in all four hours of this program, (laughs) Senator Joe Lieberman. Senator, it's great to talk with you again. I'm a great admirer of you and your work. It's a real treat to have you on the program. Uh, Thanks, Frank. And I'm a great admirer of you and your work, too. It's good to be on the program. You sure you don't want to read my whole resume? (laughs) if we have some extra time we'll we'll get to it Uh, okay so give me uh give me your thoughts on what we just saw in the in the house i know that uh, obviously your expertise has mostly been in the u.s senate but i'm sure you were watching riveted as the rest of us were was this healthy what we just witnessed was it destructive or was it something in between yeah well it wasn't healthy it probably was uh destructive I mean, it's part of a broader problem in Washington, although this played itself out within one party uh, in one chamber, obviously the Republican Party in the House. But the broader problem is that um, uh, the the way our system has, our democratic system, our republic has worked since the founding in the 18th century is by uh, people who have been elected to represent the American people in Washington, uh, with differences of opinion, meeting in the center, talking respectfully, looking for ways that they can find common ground, almost always requiring compromises, and then doing that uh, to get something done uh, for the people who are good enough to send them there. But that doesn't happen much anymore. I mean, the as somebody said to me uh, not so long ago, people in one party would say the other party was wrong on a given matter. Today, they say the other party is evil. And mm. uh, that's just not right. It's it's not what America is supposed to be about. So, as I say, coming back to last week in, in uh, the fight to be speaker, I mean, you had a, re- a relatively small, it was like 20 out of about 222, about 10% of the Republican caucus just uh, wouldn't budge to the majority, wouldn't compromise. I mean, in the end, they they got uh, Kevin McCarthy to uh, yield to them on a number of of points. But it, it, frankly, was not a good sign for what's to come. And uh, right away this week, as I understand it, they've got to adopt amendments to the rules of the House, which will incorporate and, and enact some of the concessions that uh, Speaker McCarthy made to the uh, to the 20 uh, dissidents. And uh, as happens, the, the more moderate Republicans are the ones who are not moderate, but they're they're institutionalists. They they, mm-hmm. they they want the House to operate as normally have think that uh, Kevin gave away too much and they're talking about imposing those changes. So bottom line, I'm going to talk about it in more detail. It doesn't augur well for getting a lot of things done 
uh, over the next two years in the House and therefore in Congress. Well, so that's precisely my question. What do you think the next two years look like in terms of President Biden's relationship with the Republican House, in terms of the House majority's relationship with the House minority, in terms of uh, Senator Schumer's relationship with Speaker McCarthy? And I guess maybe the most important question within the Republican conference itself, what do you think we're in store for over the next couple of years? Yeah, those are big questions. I mean, I'd I'd say that, you know, in, in the days not so long ago, um, you you would act in a way in Washington, if you were lucky enough to be elected to Congress, to try to get some things done so you can go back to your constituents um, every two or six years and say, hey, this is what I got done. And, I, I, and in fact, I worked with people in the other party to get it done. Now, uh, it seems that people try to get reelected by saying, I try to do this, but those bums in the other party. Stop mm. me from doing it, and and that's not uh, uh, good for our uh, system. So I would say um, that there will be some attempts to break through this. I mean, I, I'm I'm privileged to be the founding chair of a group called No Labels, meaning meaning don't don't pin Democrat or Republican on yourself as if those labels are what matters most. What matters most is you're an American. You were elected. To Congress, you got a responsibility to your country and your constituents. And we have uh, bipartisan groups in both uh, houses of Congress, and they're going to be working to try to come up with some uh, proposals that can pass, just as they did in the last two years, bipartisan infrastructure reform, some of the uh, COVID um, pandemic responses, well, both of which came out of uh, these these bipartisan groups. They're not leaders. They're rank and file. But if something catches fire, they can make something happen. I mean, if they can't, then the basic operation of government is 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 going to falter. And um, what do I mean by that? It's hard to imagine that the budget will be passed. They'll be mm. passing these so-called continuing resolutions, which is just a way to say we couldn't agree on the budget we wanted for the next year. So we're simply going to pass a resolution continuing the budget we had for last year, regardless of whether we're overspending in some areas or we need uh, more in other areas. And then, as was mentioned several times uh, last week in the battle for uh, the new Republican speaker, uh, we're coming up against the so-called debt limit. And if we don't extend the debt limit as much as the debt is just crazily out of site, um, then uh, it's possible that the U.S. government will default on its uh, bonds and credit, and it would create a, uh, it would put us on a path back to a, a deep recession. Uh, but, uh, but people have to compromise to do that, and uh, and in this climate where it's, uh, it's, it's just, uh, I'm, you're my enemy, and I'm going to try to make you look bad, even if that hurts the country. Uh, it's going to be a challenge to do those uh, those things that have to be done. And, uh, Senator, I'm a, a member of Lo- No Labels, lifelong independent. I remember the first yeah, meeting yeah. Uh, that we had uh, in, I think it was in your office in Washington over over 10 years ago when No Labels was first getting started. So uh, everything you're saying is uh, right up my alley. And I think uh, No Labels uh, has been offering a lot of nonpartisan and bipartisan solutions that a lot of common sense people in both parties can, can get behind. Uh, let, let me ask you about sort of a worst case scenario sure. two years from now or four years 
years from now with respect to the left. A lot of folks were watching Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talk with what some folks have called her right-wing counterparts, Matt Gates or Paul Gosar. And a lot of folks have said, well, look at what the right did here. There's no reason the left couldn't have done that two years ago when the House Democrats had a narrow four-seat majority. And now a lot of anti-establishment left-wing pundits are saying that they should take a clue from the Freedom Caucus and use this as an opportunity the next time the Democrats have a narrow majority to force votes on some of their key issues, because look at all the key concessions the right wing got here. Is that something that you think is a realistic fear two years or four years from now? Yeah, it may may really be. And uh, I must say, when I saw Congressman Ocasio-Cortez talking to Congressman Matt Gates. I thought, what the heck are those two talking about? And uh, I, I said to myself, whatever it is, it's not good for Congress or the country. <laughs> and, uh, it, um, you know, I'm, uh, th- this same thing could have happened in the Democratic Party that happened in the Republican Party last week, because there is a small group further to the left in the Democratic Party that uh, disagrees with uh, most of the other Democrats in their caucus. And uh, I must say that you've got to give Nancy Pelosi credit because uh, she is liberal herself, but she was a very strong speaker, a very good political leader, and she sort of kept them in line. But this experience in which these 20 uh, conservative Republicans basically held up the Congress and got an enormous amount of media attention, my guess will be to encourage uh, Democrats, if they re- regain mm-hmm. next time or the time after that, liberal Democrats, to try to gum up the works in the same way uh, to get something out of it. Incidentally, back in 2018, when the Democrats won a majority in the House and Nancy Pelosi was uh, set to be Speaker, a group of our Democratic members uh, uh, in the House, the House Problem Solvers Caucus, supported by No Labels, said to um, Speaker Pelosi, we're not going to support you unless you uh, make some changes in the rules. Uh, and those rules changes were meant to give individual members of Congress the, the right to at least get their amendments and bills up to be heard and debated and voted on. And they they were, uh, you know, they started out with about 28 Democrats in the No, no Labels Problem Solvers Caucus, and she wore them down, but nine of them held. And she needed those nine to get to be Speaker, and she compromised and uh, changed the rules. Uh, and uh, I suppose maybe the, the uh, 20 who fought McCarthy last week used that as a Mm. as a precedent. But, uh, you know, both houses, both chambers are very close and um, uh, both are going to require strong leadership that cooperates cooperates with each other, which is exactly what's not been happening. I want to just give you a reason to be slightly optimistic, but I'm afraid it's probably not going to happen now. 1994, I was in the Senate and uh, that was the year that Newt Gingrich and the conservative uh, Republican majority was elected in the House, and Bill Clinton was president, and most everybody said, oh, my God, nothing's going to get done. It's going to be a civil war between the parties. But these two uh, men, Clinton and Gingrich, very different, um, began to talk to each other and 
might say was political, but it was also a policy judgment. Each of them needed to get something done to say to their followers, okay, I promised you I'd do this and this is what I would do, but they both realized that they couldn't do it without the support of the other one, so they compromised. They got welfare reform done, they got criminal justice reform done, and the biggest of all, they got the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which actually led to three, the last three years of Clinton's term as president, we had a surplus in the U.S. Uh, budget, which is the last time that's happened since then. Now, can that happen again now with President Biden and the leadership of both parties in the uh, in, in the in the Congress? Well, it, it, it's you, you got to be a real optimist to think it will. But believe me, it's worth a try uh, by the president and the four leaders of both houses. And of course, it will be good for the country. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, the instance from the 1990s, because one of the things that's been frustrating to me uh, during the Obama years is a lot of Obama partisans all say, oh, Obama's not able to do anything. He's limited because all the Republicans are out to get him. And then uh, during the Trump years, the Trump uh, defenders would say the same thing. Oh, Trump's not able to get anything done because the Democrats keep trying to sink him. And I always would point to that instance of the 1990s where here, look, you had the Republicans who literally impeached Bill Clinton and you had Bob Dole who was literally running against Bill Clinton and yet they were somehow able to leave it all out on the field politically and then actually come to uh, some legislative agreement on some uh, some major, major accomplishments. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, good for you. Incidentally, I'm glad you mentioned Bob Dole because what a situation. Now, now there's a patriot, a war hero, but he's actually running against Clinton Mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't uh, showboat and take cheap political shots. He works with Clinton on some stuff to get some things done. And uh, that was pretty amazing. So, um, you know, God bless Bob Bill's memory, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're talking with uh, former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman. He's uh, very active in a group called No Labels, which uh, may actually be offering a pretty interesting choice to voters next year, which I want to ask you about. But before we talk about the presidential race, Senator, you alluded to the Problem Solvers Caucus. I was sort of hoping that the result of this speaker stalemate would be that the Problem Solvers Caucus would come up with a Census speaker that moderate Republicans and Democrats could get behind, and uh, we might actually see something get accomplished for the next two years. Well, that didn't happen, but I am wondering will the Problem Solvers Caucus be the group that helps get things like a vote on the debt ceiling or other key must pass pieces of legislation through so that the wheels of government can keep on, on churning? Do you see them being more important given the narrow majority this year? Yeah, I do. Incidentally, Frank, I appreciate your involvement uh, with No Labels. And, you know, you and we and No Labels really represent the largest political group in America, as I like to say, the fastest growing uh, political party. And the biggest political party in America is No Party, which mm-hmm. is the independents, the, the unaffiliated, because they, they've lost confidence in uh, Republicans. Uh, and Democrats. So if anything is going to be accomplished in this next two years in Congress, the odds are great that it will start out with these bipartisan groups in both the House uh, and the Senate. I, I, I share your I shared your hope that uh, they would have 
been able to play some role in coming up with a speaker that had bipartisan support, but it, it just didn't come together. And the the majority in both caucuses didn't want to cooperate at all. Either. So the moderate Republicans were under pressure from their caucus not to get involved in that kind of thing. And, and frankly, the moderate Democrats uh, were under pressure from their caucus. And a lot of Democrats said, um, if that ever became possible, they just couldn't imagine a Republican they'd vote for for speaker, although there were some pretty good, widely respected candidates like the uh, former Congressman Fred Upton of Michigan. So, but but they're it. I mean, uh, barring a, a, a wonderful surprise that the leaders of both parties in both houses worked together with President Biden, uh, if anything uh, is going to happen, including on the must-happen stuff, like the budget and the debt ceiling, it's got to come out of, it's got to start in the bipartisan groups that No Labels has supported and will continue to support. One of the reasons that uh, I found to be optimistic in the last couple of weeks is that while we're seeing more and more state legislatures develop their own equivalent of the Freedom Caucus, we also saw Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Alaska have coalitions of both parties to elect a speaker or a leader of that legislature to have the Democrats and the Republicans in those state legislatures come together and pick one of these unity speakers. And we had a similar arrangement in New York a couple of years ago with the Independent Democratic Conference partnered with the Republicans. I'm wondering if we can't see a bipartisan or nonpartisan unity on a national level, are the state legislatures the next sort of chapter of where we can look to for that sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. I think that's an important insight. Uh, you know, famously, I think it was Justice Brandeis said that the, laboratory, the, the state governments are the laboratories of democracy. In other words, it's where uh, new ideas begin, uh, um, new ideas usually in terms of legislation, that if it passes in enough of the state uh, government laboratories, then it will be taken up nationally in Congress. But it, it also can be true with this um, uh, partisanship problem, crisis really, and that uh, the, the state legislatures are closer to the people than Congress is. They're getting the same message from, I think, a plurality or a majority of their voters. Get together, guys. Don't 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 keep spitting at each other. We want you to solve some of our problems instead of playing politics. And I take that to be a, a really encouraging sign that could lead to similar behavior uh, in Washington. Uh, we're talking with Senator Joe Lieberman, who's been speaking out about polarization in politics long before it was fashionable. In some respects, he was a uh, a victim of hyperpartisanship. Other respects, he showed that hyperpartisanship can be countered with uh, nonpartisan coalitions of people working together. All right, uh, Senator, next year, the most likely matchup in the presidential race, it looks to be uh, like a Biden versus Trump rematch, even though the majority or at least a plurality of Republicans Republicans say they'd prefer someone other than Trump, and a plurality of Democrats say they prefer someone other than Biden. I know you served with Senator Bi- with uh, then Senator Biden for a long time in the Senate, but no labels is talking about offering a third choice, not a third political party, but just a third choice for folks that are fed up with a Biden versus Trump rematch. How do you view a no labels candidate? 
faring in that sort of a scenario? And are there any specific names of folks you could see that would fill that void effectively? Yeah, so really no names yet. But, I mean, to me, this is a a really significant development because you're right. Let's start with the political reality, which you stated. You've got two probable candidates, President Trump, President Biden, uh, saying they're both, well, one has already announced Trump. Biden said he's going to run again. And a majority of the American people say that's not the choice they want, including significant numbers in both of their own uh, political parties. Um, the No Labels has really been a movement that's been dedicated to trying to make the two-party system uh, in America work by getting more centrist elected in both parties. Um, so the fact that we have uh, now as a movement opened the door to running a third ticket, which will be a national unity bipartisan ticket uh, in 2024 is really significant, and it represents uh, broad frustration among our members with the idea that it's going to be a choice um, between Trump and Biden. Um, what, what we're doing now, because, you know, you can't decide in 2024 to run a third uh, ticket, an independent ticket, bipartisan, because you got to qualify in all 50 states. I mean, the two parties have, in a sense, made it harder to to do the kind of thing we're trying to do. So we knew we'd have to start early, and we've raised some money, and we got people working methodically in the states around the country. We think that um, we're qualified now in about 10 or 11 states, and we're confident that by uh, 2024 we, we will be on the ballot in um, all 50 states. So then the question is, uh, first of do do we run a ticket? And, you know, we're calling this the insurance policy project. And we, by that we mean uh, we hope and, and maybe we won't have to buy the pol- or, or use the policy like you buy a fire insurance policy. You hope your house doesn't catch on fire. So we hope that uh, maybe the two parties will nominate different candidates that will be more centrist and, and have more support for the American people. If not, we want to be ready uh, to run a ticket. And and we haven't thought about, really, I certainly haven't, uh, who might be on that ticket. But I think there is a real strong consensus among the members of No Labels around the country that if we do this, it, we can make a really strong statement uh, by making it a bipartisan ticket, one Republican, one Democrat. And, of course, it depends on who's interested. It would take some guts by established politicians. Absolutely. To run well, hey, because they would declare war on their parties. You have some experience running for president or vice president, so don't be surprised yes. to see yourself uh, drafted. I, I uh, doubt it. I doubt it. But I'm glad to support this effort. And look, if it if for some reason it helps to get both parties to nominate people who are more responsive to both what the members of their party want as well as the American people, then all to the good. Uh, thank you, Senator. I appreciate it. Let's do this again soon. It's always a treat to talk with you. And you too. Have a good night. Take care. Thank you. Uh, Senator Joe Lieberman. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 833-969-4447. That is 833-969-4447. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Tommy Two-Tone. Uh, we've got a new number for today, uh, but that's not it. Our phone number is 833-969-4447. Four open lines right now if you want to comment. Hey, next hour, should you, if you're charged with a crime, should the jury have to be unanimous to convict you? We'll explore that And some changes that two states that said no to that question have embarked on recently. Some big news last week that I suspect many of you might have have missed because of the holidays and because of all the speaker stuff. I'll tell you about this and what it might mean for you if you were convicted by a jury, but not unanimously. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Here's a question for you. If you are on trial for a felony and the jury wants to find you guilty, do all the people on that jury need to agree? Well, now the answer to that question is yes. And in every state in the country, you cannot be convicted of a felony and federally. This is the case as well. You cannot be convicted of a felony unless everybody on those juries agrees to convict you. And I think that's a sound policy. It makes a lot of sense. But there are a whole lot of people who were convicted when that wasn't the rule. If you took a break from the news over the holidays, there's a good chance you missed a ruling by the Oregon Supreme Court that all state prisoners convicted by non-unanimous juries are entitled to have their cases reconsidered. So what does that mean? In practical terms, what that means is that hundreds of felony convictions are now invalid. 
So for people that were convicted by a jury in a non-unanimous verdict, those cases are either going to need to be retried, dropped, or resolved with a new plea deal. And it's a big win for advocates that had been fighting for this for a long time. And it comes just a few months after the Louisiana Supreme Court reached the opposite conclusion in a similar case this past fall. You see, for decades, those two states, Oregon and Louisiana, were the only ones in the whole country that allowed for a defendant to be found guilty of certain crimes, even if one or two of the 12 jurors in that trial voted not guilty. It was first, uh, this sort of a system was first adopted by Louisiana in 1898. These non-unanimous verdicts were explicitly designed, and this is not me being woke at all. I think you know me. I'm not a wokester. Uh, This is history. These were explicitly designed to rig the legal system in the state of Louisiana against black defendants. Since the state was constitutionally barred from excluding black people from juries outright, this rule ensured that a mostly white jury would be able to convict a black defendant of a crime over the objections of one, two, or at that time even three black jurors voting to acquit. Uh, there's an interesting documentary about this, but, you know, that's that was the case. Oregon adopted a similar rule back in 1933 after a Jewish immigrant was acquitted of a high-profile murder due to a single holdout juror. And in an editorial that year, one of the big newspapers out there said, quote, vast immigration into America from Southern and Eastern Europe have combined to make the jury of 12 increasingly unwieldy and unsatisfactory. Well, in the ruling last week, the judge added a concurring opinion to the majority ruling um, solely to elaborate on the state's history of racial exclusion. We're talking Oregon here. Despite the undeniable white supremacist roots of these laws, meaning non-unanimous jury verdicts, they survived multiple legal challenges, and they endured for nearly 90 years in Oregon and 120 years in Louisiana. Voters in Louisiana finally abolished these non-unanimous juries in 2018. Two years later, the Supreme Court declared them unconstitutional in Ramos versus Virginia, which also brought the practice to an end in Oregon. So now, if you want to be convicted of a felony in a jury trial, you need a unanimous group of people saying you're guilty. And I think that's a good thing. At that time, the justices, meaning the U.S. Supreme Court justices, they didn't weigh in on whether that ruling, the Ramos ruling, should also prompt a case review for people behind bars who had already been convicted and who had already exhausted their appeals. The following year, the Supreme Court's conservative majority ruled that the decision did not automatically extend retroactively. So understand what the Supreme Court did here. They said, from now on, can't be convicted of a felony unless everybody agrees on the jury. But if you are already convicted, eh, that doesn't necessarily mean you're out. So there were a lot of legislative efforts to sort these questions out in both states, and they failed. 
uh, last year before both of the courts in Louisiana and Oregon had to weigh in. Pushback largely came from DAs, elected prosecutors, along with some victims' advocacy groups who argued that undoing these convictions would re-traumatize victims. And look, you can understand it. Like If you are someone who um, had a family member that was murdered, or if you are someone that was an assault victim or a rape victim, and you're... Your assailant, the person that raped you or assaulted you or killed your loved one, was convicted, but not by a majority jury. You can understand why these folks don't want to see these people walking around. So one Oregonian, a relative of two people who were murdered, described it as a tension between, quote, two unthinkable options, forcing victims to relive the most traumatic events of their lives, or allowing hundreds of people to remain in prison despite unconstitutional convictions. In Louisiana, the proposed law would have allowed a five-member review panel to offer parole to people convicted by these non-unanimous jury. Ironically, talks collapsed, at least in part, because of disagreement on whether the panel's decision would need to be unanimous or not. How's that for irony? Some of the advocates who've sought to free people convicted by non-unanimous juries are now hoping that the Oregon decision will push Louisiana lawmakers to pick up the question again this year. What do you think? If we now know the law, the law is you need to be convicted by a unanimous jury. If someone's already in prison in Louisiana, and they were already convicted by a jury 10 out of 12, let's say. Should they get a new trial? Should that conviction be vacated? What's your solution? 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. I'd say in my view is that the conviction should be invalidated. It's easy for me to say because I was never assaulted or uh, raped or had a loved one murdered in the state of Louisiana. It's easy for me to say. But I think uh, that, uh, look, if the evidence is strong enough that they can get a guilty conviction, let them get a guilty conviction before a unanimous trial. I think you're going to see a lot of these people end up taking plea deals anyway. So I think the they should absolutely be uh, invalidated. 833-969-4447. Sybil Fox is um, a part of uh, the participatory defense movement in New Orleans, and she was on WWL-TV in New Orleans talking about these non-unanimous jury verdicts. We know the law was unconstitutional. They said we can't do it anymore. But for us to not go back and make this law of non-unanimous juries retroactive, it's just as shameful. Uh, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. And again, I realize it's easy for me to say, but that's... Still, I'm still saying it. 833-969-4447. See, relief for people who've been convicted by non-unanimous juries, it's not as simple as just getting a Supreme Court ruling in their favor. In hundreds of Louisiana cases, there's no record whatsoever of how jurors voted. So it makes it difficult to sort out who was affected by these unconstitutional verdicts. Some civil rights attorneys have resorted to hiring investigators to track down jurors individually and ask them if they remember the details of the deliberations. In 2018, one woman 
uh, described her regret after she voted to convict during a deliberation where two jurors voted no. And the convicted man in that case was ultimately freed after nearly 10 years in prison behind a wrongful conviction. It's also pretty impossible to unwind all the other effects of non-unanimous juries. Eliza Kaplan, who's the director of the Criminal Justice Reform Clinic in uh, Oregon, said she's heard countless stories of people who took plea deals because their lawyers said, we have non-unanimous juries and you're a black man, you'll never win. How do you undo something like that? You can't. The guy took a plea deal. So it's very difficult for people incarcerated under circumstances like that to get out of prison. Uh, Release from prison isn't the end of the story either. One fellow, Terrence Hayes, spent nearly 13 years incarcerated after he was convicted 10 to 2 in Oregon, and he wrote about the impact he still faces now that he's a free man. He said, I'm still bound by the chains of an unconstitutional conviction on my record. This impacts my employment, housing opportunities, my reputation, and so many other aspects of life. I, uh, look, I I understand that. I understand that. That uh, resonates with me. 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to uh, Charlie in Hell's Kitchen, who's been uh, holding a while. Hello, Charlie. Hello. Hey, Charlie, what's on your mind? Yeah, I want to say, uh, thanks for taking my call first, but I disagree with the no labels movement. I don't like it because I think it's going to shortchange or hurt President Trump, and I'm supporting President Trump in, in the next election, and what, what do you think about that? That'll give people a third choice. And, and I basically view presidential election as a binary choice. I know people don't like Biden or Trump necessarily, but I, 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 I want to see Trump win. And I think that this no labels person could give somebody like Andrew Yang or Chrissy Todd Whitman uh, a chance to run and short-circuit President Trump's chances of winning. What, what do you think about that? Well, look, I, I covered this on uh, December 8th. So far, uh, I mean, look, it's certainly possible, especially in states that don't have ranked choice voting, which is most of them. But um, I covered this on December 8th when there was a report out from a group called Third Way, which showed the exact opposite of what you're saying. The report from Third Way, which is a, a center-left think tank, They warned about the dangers of a third-party candidate, and what they found is that their research showed that Trump's supporters were much more um, solid and much more loyal and much more steadfast than Biden's supporters, and that it was was much more likely that um, that they found – their analysis found that Trump voters are stickier – they like him more than Biden voters like Biden, so they're not as likely to jump around as the Biden voters are because, according to their analysis, the Biden voters, the Biden support is um, much weaker and much less sticky, and they're much more likely to abandon him for another candidate. So th- the truth is I don't know. Uh, I would guess that it depends on who the candidate is um, and who the, who the candidates are before we can make that kind of analysis. But, look, the, e- the easy thing for states to do— to forget about this problem entirely is just adopt ranked choice voting. If they had ranked choice voting, they could do, uh, they could rank, um, say, Joe Lieberman first and Trump second, or they could rank, uh, you know, Joe Lieberman first and Biden second, and they wouldn't have to worry about the candidate that they uh, don't like getting uh, getting winning the state. Thank you, Charlie. 
David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes. Uh, good morning. Morning. On the subject of these uh, non-unanimous juries, I have to agree with you that all of these people who have been locked up are going to have to be either released immediately or retried. And it's going to be very expensive, which is the problem that I have. But this never should have been allowed in the first place. As far as I know, and you know, I consider myself a fairly bright person, I always thought the Constitution required that people be convicted by a unanimous jury of their peers. I was very surprised to hear about this, to be honest. Well, I think most people are, and that's why one of the reasons that um, that I wanted to, you know, talk about this case because there are a lot of people uh, affected by this, and uh, I think people always just assumed, even before this Supreme Court ruling uh, four years ago, I think a lot of people just assumed you got to have it unanimous. And look, on a federal level, that's certainly the case, and in states like New York, that's always been the case, but that was not the case for. Uh, about a century in Louisiana and Oregon. So, yeah, I think we're on the same page, David. I think you got to invalidate these convictions. I My guess is that most of these people are going to end up taking pleas. And uh, it, for the people that are actually not guilty, I, hey, let them go to trial again. And if the prosecutors in those communities think they have a, uh, enough evidence to convict them, let them give it a shot. But I, I agree with you. You know, uh, I mean, uh, that, that's, what, that's what happens. You can't be uh, doing this and then expecting there to be no consequences. Right, exactly. And and I'll just say this. I think, just from my knowledge of how prosecutions work in this country, that very few of these people are going to be retried. It's just too expensive and too involved to go back and dig up all the evidence and everything else. So I think a lot of these people are just going to be set free, hopefully, because I think it's unfair. I mean, to be honest, it's unfair to keep people in prison who've gone through this. I mean, they've been denied their constitutional rights. It just comes down to that. Well, that, that, thank, thank you, David. And that's what Sybil Fox said in that clip that I just played you. She said, look, the Supreme Court, a conservative Supreme Court, by the way, a majority of uh, conservative justices, they found that this is unconstitutional. How can you still keep people in prison who were convicted under a system that the Supreme Court found unconstitutional? And I'll be honest, I agree. I agree. How do you do that? I don't think you can. Uh, 833-969-4447. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. Hey, Steve. Hey, how's it going, Frank? Going well. Uh, first, before we get to the uh, the juries, um, I, every generation with their kids have sleepless nights with their children. I could just picture in the 1950s when uh, 16, 17-year-old kids or speeding down the block in a, a big 2,000-pound piece of steel, the mothers must have went crazy. Right, so right. every generation has that. And quickly, before I get to meet Mateus, the independent voter, folks, keep this in mind. That's a misnomer, that term. They're not really open-minded. If you speak to them, if you look at the polling, they are very set in their ways, whether they're pro-affirmative action, pro-abortion, pro-open borders. They are very set in their ways. The, the key to winning on Election Day is getting your voters out, and hopefully that's how you win, if you do have enough voters anymore. And the thing now with the juries, okay, the, all right, the Supreme Court ruled on that. Um, uh, they also said that, they're, like you just said, they're not going to revisit the 
past uh, cases where there were uh, cases where there wasn't 12 unanimous. They're not going to revisit that. That's going to hold. But I would tell people, what, does it really matter today? If you look at some of the DAs that are out there, like this guy Bragg right here in Manhattan, who just doesn't. Well, but don't confuse the issue, Steve, or, no. because this is not affecting I'm not any. But I'm no, you point. are. You are because uh, this is not. This is affecting hundreds of people and many more victims, and none of them have anything to do with Manhattan or Alvin Bragg. Right. So what they have to do, if they're in jail and it was an anonymous decision, right, and they have to go to the courts and they have to do something about it in the courts. They have to have that reversed and then have hopefully a, a retrial. And if they're innocent, they're innocent. If they're not innocent and they're guilty, they're found guilty, then, then so be it. We do have a fair justice system here, but we don't have a system anymore where there's a certain mindset in this country that's not interested in putting criminals behind bars. People have to come face-to-face with that because they're going to reverse a lot of these cases. They're going to release, release these criminals. Central Park 5, that's why Bloomberg didn't want to settle with them because he saw the evidence and everything, and he didn't want to settle. Of course he wouldn't do that. And the, and the bottom line is, if you have juries that won't convict either. So there's a, uh, remember, folks, there's a mindset in this country that does not want to put criminals in jail, right, well, and you're living under, in this un, country with Understanding them. that, Steve. So it sounds like you think that these people who were convicted under the non-unanimous juries, they should be able to get new trials, you're saying? Of course. Right. Okay. I think that's fascinating, right? Because thank you, Steve. Because here you have a situation where Dave in the Bronx is on the left, right? Uh, Steve in Manhattan is on the right. I, I think I'm probably somewhere in the center. And all three of us are saying the same thing that you have to that you have to give these people new trials. If you want to keep them in prison, you have to give them new trials. When was the last time the three of us Steve, Dave, and me agreed on anything, all, all, all three of us. I think that's very interesting. 833-969-4447 if you want to comment. Uh, by the way, you know, I really had no interest in talking about any of the Prince Harry interview. But I was, um, I was, I was watching the, uh, the football game. I think it was the Giant game. While I was doing some work. And then 60 Minutes comes on after on Sunday. And I said, all right, I'll, you know, I didn't change it because I was busy trying to prepare for the show because I was behind because I was with Carmine all day because my wife was at this baby shower out on Long Island. And I said, I, I didn't change it. So I kept it on just out of curiosity, really. But I was kind of only half paying attention to it. And then um, I, I found most of the interview really distasteful. And, and I'm not trying to rush to judgment here because I get that Prince Harry's had a tough time. And he perceives that he and his wife have gotten a raw deal from the press. Okay, I get all that. I'm not going to argue with that either. I don't understand why you would air all this personal dirty laundry out while you're not talking to your father, while you're not talking to your brother. Why you would air this out on TV. If I was not talking to my brother, you know what I would do? Rather than do interviews about it, I would call my brother. I would work to repair our relationship. Because I guarantee you, whatever whatever fissures exist between the two of them, it's not going to be helped by him running on to 60 Minutes. But there was just one part of the interview that I found so, so funny and sad at the same time. And he was talking about racism and how Meghan Markle, that's his wife, who's, I guess, uh, partly minority. I, I don't know what she is. I guess she's part black. I don't know. That makes no difference to me. I don't care. I don't care about any of these people. But 
I did find what he said so interesting about how being married to Meghan Markle changed his perspective on race and on bigotry. I've never heard someone talk like this. And he, this guy was dead serious. And by the way, this is a person that once dressed up as a Nazi. I want to point that out at a Halloween party, this, he, oh, which he promptly blamed on his brother. This is what Prince Harry said about uh, his history of bigotry. But then you add in the race element, which was what the press, British press jumped on straight away. I went into this incredibly naive. I had no idea the British press was so bigoted. Hell, I was probably bigoted before the relationship with with Meghan. You think you were bigoted before the relationship with Meghan? I I don't know. Put it this way. I didn't see what I now see. That has got to be the stupidest thing that I've ever heard any human being say. I mean, and that's and I've done a lot of listening over the years. So, all right, we're used to hearing people say the press is racist, right? Eric Adams says it. uh, You know, a lot of people have said that. Okay, let's put that aside. Uh, I I have no idea if the press in England is bigoted. I I don't pay enough attention to the British press to know whether they're bigoted or not. I don't think they are, but okay, I'll give him that one. But did you listen to what he said there? And I'm going to play this for you one more time. He said, I was probably bigoted. What? You were probably bigoted? You were so bigoted that you chose to marry a minority woman and have children with her? What does that mean? You were probably bigoted. And then that's quite a thing to say about yourself. And then when you're asked a very gentle follow-up question, which is basically shock on Anderson Cooper's part that you could, you're admitting you used to be racist while you fell in love with a minority woman. He says, I don't know. I don't know. Well, then why'd you say it? I I, I thought that was the strangest thing in the world. Let me hear that one more time, if I may, uh, Matt. But then you add in the race element, which was what the press, British press, jumped on straight away. I went into this incredibly naive. I had no idea the British press was so bigoted. Hell, I was probably bigoted before the relationship with with Meghan. You think you were bigoted before the relationship with Meghan? I, I don't know. Put it this way. I didn't see what I now see. All right. Well, I get the I didn't see what I now see kind of thing. Whenever you marry anyone, that person, uh, I think generally, gives you a broader world perspective, right? But to say that you used to be bigoted and the press is bigoted. Oh, but I'm not sure if I was bigoted. I mean, this guy. It's the dumbest answer ever. It's like It really is. Were you bigoted? The answer is no. I mean, or it's yes, right? Well, yes or no, but to say like the way he says it yeah, is like it's just so. Well, I, I don't know. Dumb. It's almost like wait, wait, she's a minority. Wait, I might not have married her if I would have known that. It's almost like he didn't even know what to say or anything about it. And, and you know what also just kills me is that we're now in an era where you could just say someone or something is racist without offering any evidence. Or, I mean, if you're in the British press right now, right? You run these British tabloids. And he's calling you racist? Uh, Wouldn't you want a concrete example? Now, I realize 60 Minutes, they don't do live interviews. It's all taped. So who knows? Maybe he brought out all this evidence explaining why this British paper is racist, that British paper is racist. I suspect not. All right. So I'm done discussing Prince Harry. I, I found that to be 
absurd. Absolutely uh, absurd. All right. uh, Charles is in the Queens. Hello, Charles. Charles, what's on your mind? Well, I'm ambivalent regarding that the, to retry the people. However, being that you said that the, um, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional the original way, so well, I, I didn't say it. Done, I didn't say it. The Supreme Court said. I, I, I'm saying the Supreme. Yeah, you said yeah. the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional. So I guess we have to retry them. However. Thinking uh, on the side of the victim, the victim's uh, family and so on, all of a sudden, it, there's no closure. All of a sudden, the guy may get, get off and they're sure that he's guilty. In addition to the fact that witnesses die, maybe the guy is sitting in prison already for 10 years, and you don't have the witnesses, you know, he gets, it, the accused person, the one sitting in jail, um, has an easy way of getting out of the pick, out, becoming innocent because um, it's 10 years later. Well, you, you're exactly, anymore, you, I, I think, Charles, you just, you hit the nail on the head in terms of why um, uh, Louisiana hasn't yet worked out a solution on this. Because I think those are exactly the kind of solutions they're trying to figure out. And it's not only the fact that evidence degrades over time, uh, both eyewitness testimony, because as you point out, people could no longer be alive. But it's also the right. fact that um, it just from an emotional point of view, let's say you had a loved one that was murdered and now you have to go and sit through this whole trial once again. I mean, it is a traumatic thing for a lot of people. So uh, I get it. Uh, Very I, traumatic, I, yeah. I, I, I totally understand that. And I'm not trying to act like it's an easy issue. But I don't see how you keep these folks in jail or in prison after the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, that nobody should be in prison for a non-unanimous jury verdict. But you, it's great food for thought, Charles. Thank you. So if the Prince Harry thing was the most ridiculous thing I'd seen over the weekend, let me tell you what I found to be the most interesting thing I heard over the weekend. Cindy Adams is a, sort of a legendary journalist and a gossip columnist. She writes a column in the New York Post. She also does a, a radio program on the weekend on WABC in New York. And she told such an interesting anecdote about Barbara Walters. And I don't know that I spent much time, I don't think I spent any time talking about Barbara Walters because, honestly, so many people all that um, that followed her career more closely than I did and that knew her spoke about her. But I was absolutely riveted to this Cindy Adams anecdote about Barbara Walters. And I thought the least I could do was replay it, because if you didn't hear it, and you could listen to the whole podcast at the WABCradio.com, if you didn't hear it, I suspect you're going to be just as interested in I, as I was. Here was Cindy Adams from uh, this past weekend uh, on Sunday talking about Barbara Walters. On one international cruise... We had our private table. Our backs were to the room. We sat in dark glasses and babushkas. A nearby party of nobodies, six people, were talking loudly. And what they were doing over veal cutlets, they were dissing Barbara. We monitored every word. We heard them. 
after dinner, the two of us walked over to the table and asked them to repeat what they had said. They turned gray. It was a nice moment. Another time, flying to Italy, there was our cosmetic surgeon friend, Dr. Daniel Baker, who has done all the most famous faces in America. He gave me Ambion for the first time. I'd never taken it before. It was five milligrams. Forgetting I'd taken one, I woke up and I took more. I was out. I was permanently out. My head lay in our breakfast omelet as the plane was landing. To disembark, Barbara, who hasn't had a great sense of humor at things like that, Barbara had me tied onto a wheelchair and with her limited humor was not thrilled to be pushing me up a ramp. And uh, there was a whole lot more uh, to what Cindy Adams had to say about Barbara Walters. A fascinating, fascinating discussion. So I hope you'll uh, check it out. Uh, listen to the whole Cindy Adams program. A lot, a big portion of it was about Barbara Walters. And it was the kind of recollection, you know, there was a lot of tributes to Barbara Walters. But that was one of the best recollections from someone that was really her peer. They were just about the same age. They ran in a lot of the same circles. They came from a, a similar upbringing. And uh, I thought it was so interesting. So uh, I want to encourage you to check that out. All right. Uh, we're we're going to do is if you are the seventh caller right now to 833-969-4447, we're going to give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then you'll be $1,000 richer. So uh, be the seventh caller now. New number. Take note of this new number. 833-969-4447. We will do the $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the great Dolly Parton uh, with a song uh, that is mostly associated with uh, Whitney Houston now, but uh, was her song. This is one of the many songs where a cover version of the song is more famous than the original song. 
But uh, the reason I was eager to play this this week is because Sunday was Elvis Presley's birthday. And, and Elvis Presley would have been 88. And uh, you might think, why are we not playing any Elvis music? Well, we're going to play some Elvis music all week. But um, this song was almost sung by Elvis. So Dolly Parton, who wrote this song, she met with Elvis's manager to discuss his song, but the manager wanted half the publishing rights in exchange for Elvis singing the song. So, obviously, she was not going to give it away. She knew what a hit she had on her hands with this song. So, uh, she said she had to keep that copyright in her pocket. You got to take care of business. Everybody's going to use you if they can. These are, in her view, these were her songs. They're like her children. And she wanted these songs to support her when she was old. And they have. So, despite the fact that Elvis never recorded the song, this record still had a special place in his art. Priscilla Presley, Elvis's wife, who's still around today, she looks great, she's doing great, um, she shared a very kind message on Elvis's eight, what would have been his 88th birthday on Sunday. And that's why I had this song in my heart, in my uh, brain and my heart. Priscilla, Elvis's wife, told Dolly Parton that when she and Elvis divorced, think of how sad this is and how sweet at the same time. When she and Elvis divorced, Elvis sang this song to Priscilla. Imagine that. I mean, that's something. Uh, so I, I had that song in my head since uh, since Sunday. So it was the Dolly Parton version. I'm glad we were able to play it. All right. Without further ado, uh, it is time for us to play. The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Um, let us say hello to Scott in New Jersey. Hello, Scott. Hey, Frank, how you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Scott, have you heard this segment before? Never. Never? Never okay. All right. This is, what, what makes you, uh, why are you up so early today? I'm uh, going to drive a friend of mine to the airport. Oh, very nice. Where's he going? Uh, I am not sure. He's uh, going to work. I know that. Well, you must be a pretty good friend. Are you getting up at this time of the morning to drive him to the airport? It's 100 bucks. Oh, he's paying you. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you're not that good of a friend then. All right. Well, hopefully we can make this uh, morning even more uh, lucrative for you. All right. This game's very simple. Um, we have 10 trivia questions. Most of them are fairly easy. A couple towards the end are a little tricky. But um, after the first question, a timer will start ticking. And you're going to have 60 seconds to answer all 10 of these questions correctly. If you answer a question correctly... We're just going to move on to the next one so that we can get to all 10 within the 60 seconds. Uh, so I'm not going to say, oh, that's great. You did a great job. We're just going to move right on. If you get one wrong, then you'll hear a, a, a wrong buzzer and you'll 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 lose. Simple enough, Scott? Sounds good, yeah. Uh, all right, let's do it. What word is the opposite of cold? 
Uh, on what television program did William Shatner play Captain Kirk? Star Trek. Name a country that borders the United States. Canada. What state was Joe Lieberman a U.S. senator from? Connecticut. Which of New Jersey's two football teams is going to the playoffs? Giants. What is the square root of four? Two. In what year did the Berlin Wall fall? 1988. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. You were doing great. Uh, off by one. It was 1989. 1989. You did great. You were doing great. You were at a great pace. You got six right, and uh, you lost on the seventh. Uh, what year did the Berlin Wall fall? 1989. Scott, I'm going to uh, put you on hold. Uh, Kenneth is going to give you a uh, a consolation prize for your trouble, okay? Well, all right. Thank you. Well done, though. That guy, he was doing well. Doing well. 1989. Berlin Wall. 1989. All right. Um couple of things here. If you want to uh, follow us on Facebook, you can. Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. We also have a Facebook group that you can join. Did you send me the music yesterday morning, uh, Matt Blaze? I, I don't know that you did because I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember getting it and uh, and posting. Maybe you did. I don't know. We'd have to check. But um, Well, I mean, it's like uh, yesterday's news at this point. But um, we post in there the uh, the music that uh, that we play on the show, the bumper music. So if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, you can um, just join the Facebook group. We're looking for more people to participate in the Facebook group who listen to the show and want to comment on subjects about the show. I have to tell you, this group has gone from being fun for a lot of people to being mildly annoying for me, to now being the aspect of my day that takes up the most time. Uh, and I'm not, that is not an exaggeration. This group is out of control, right? So yesterday I brought you the story of this fella who actually left the group because after repeatedly not posting on on topic, he couldn't bear the fact that we would need to approve his posts, which is what everyone else has to do with, and um, he left in protest. Fine. Okay. You don't want to leave? You want to go? We'll go. So there's another fella in, th- there's another person in the group who I think uses several names. And I'm not going to mention the name by giving h- him or her the uh, credibility. But the female name she uses, she harasses uh, me mostly. Listens to every word that I have uh, I've said for years. She's written to my bosses. I, first of all, I don't even think it's a woman because one of the other names that she uses is a male name. She's written to my bosses at three different radio companies that I've worked for. Accused me of anti-Semitism. Accused me of all sorts of things. Tried to get me in trouble repeatedly. And basically gets his or her jollies by going on Facebook and... Um, criticizing me, but they know so much about what I do that clearly they listen to every word of the show, every single word. And um, this person likes to mix it up with anybody that uh, that is pro-Frank or pro-Curtis or pro-anybody. This person's just anti-everybody in the Facebook group, but a lot of times she or he or they are on topic. They're at least listening to the show. And look, 
The group is Morano Radio fans and haters. So if you have criticism, bring it on. I can take it. So um, because of the acerbic nature of this person, they tend to get into a lot of arguments with other people in the group. Now, if you're in the group, I don't know why you just wouldn't ignore what they say. Or the smart thing is you block them. But some people in the group love to mix it up with this person and then complain that that other person has taken it too far. So one person in the group um, has reported some of her comments. And look, there are some rules that we ask that you follow in the group. One is no promotions or spam. One is no hate speech or bullying. Don't bash the other hosts. Keep posts relevant to the show. Um, And if you violate those, we'll take down your post. I try not to remove anybody. I was looking, and in the history, we've had this page for or this uh, group for about six years. In the whole six years, we've only banned seven people. And those seven were guilty of the most vile, disgusting, racist, pornographic comments, harassment, stalking, all sorts of things that you can uh, really, there's no way that we could countenance that. So we, uh, we've banned a total of seven people in the course of six years with thousands of members, only six people. We've had to temporarily suspend people from time to time, but it's rare, very rare. So this one fella... Nice guy who I've met in person, but he can be a little obsessive, to put it mildly. He continues to complain about this other person in the group. So all I'm thinking is, why don't you just block them so you don't engage? And this is someone who's had the complainer in this case has mixed it up with a lot of the other group members. They've had complaints about other people in the group. Other people in the group have had complaints about him. And it's like, work it out amongst yourselves, right? So anyway, um, all I'm thinking is, why not just block them? This person didn't want to block them. So um, not only does he write, I think, to me, trying to uh, get me to remove this person from the group, but he writes to the two biggest fan favorites in the group, the, the people that I'm very fond of, One is Ellen, who Ellen is the model Facebook citizen, right? She is always on topic. She's prolific. She's always intelligent. She always uses proper grammar. She always uses proper syntax. Her analysis of the show is thorough. If she's commenting on a subject that you haven't heard, it's uh, she provides enough information about it so you know what my position was, what other people's position was. If she disagrees, she does so politely. She doesn't attack people. Uh, she's not annoying. So this person was wise enough to get Ellen to reach out to me to try to ban this other person. Then... Not just Ellen. He goes to our favorite French listener, Noemi, and tries to get Noemi to lobby me. He's literally got a team of lobbyists all lobbying me to ban one of these other members. And I'm thinking, if you're going to go to this much effort, just block this person. Just block them so you don't see their posts. But, no, I had to deal with uh, a whole bunch of folks all lobbying on behalf of blocking this per uh, on banning this person
Now, the bottom line is, though, I don't like this person, the person that they all want to get rid of. But I'm very hesitant to suspend anyone from the group unless it's something that's so over the top and irredeemable. I'm a free speech guy, right? I, I like free speech. I like people being able to work out these things among themselves. But even if I were inclined, and I met with the admins about this, we have our daily admin meeting, which is now, because of all these issues with the Facebook group, it's now uh, like a two-hour meeting every day. Um, Even if I were inclined to ban this person, the fact that this guy has been uh, publicly saying, well, I'm going to get Frank and company to ban you, it means I obviously can't ban them because then it looks like he has this power to get people banned from the group. And it's like a teacher. If um, one student tattles on another for um, saying a bad word or something or being mean to them and the teacher says, stop, don't do that, what's going to happen? They're going to pick on that student even more. Whereas if the teacher tells the student or, or the same thing with parents, that you have to work that out on your own between the two of you, then that usually leads to a much better solution. So uh, I didn't take any action to ban this person, but I don't know if Facebook removed them or if they, uh, you know, what the case is. But then one of the fellows in the group publicly said that I, I banned them, which I did not do, and I don't think any of these guys did. So now I'm getting criticism for banning her, which I did not do. They're not banned. They're, they're still in the oh, group. Oh, they're not banned. They're, they're in the they group. They are still. still in the group. And, and then this other fellow is saying, well, Frank took too long to ban them. No, I didn't ban them. So the, I, I have not banned anybody in a long time. So uh, if you want to participate in the group in a meaningful way, even if you're critical, like, for instance, uh, one person corrected my uh, – pronunciation of marijuana great correct you can criticize me all you want just be nice to each other it's all i ask you don't have to be nice just be civil to one another i just don't understand on social media why there's the immediate need to go after these strangers that you've never met it makes no Jesus sense to me so um so that's that's today's adventure in this facebook group for a group of 3100 people i mean look it is fun uh, I have um, some friends and family members. They tell me the only reason they're still keeping Facebook is because of this group, because of all the drama that's in there. Uh, my friend Craig messaged me yesterday. He said he wants the haters to have their own group because they're so much more entertaining than the fans. So, look, I love the haters. You know, as long as you're listening, great. Criticize all you want. Just don't run to me and beg for people to be banned because I'm not going to ban them. Sorry. All right. Um, 15 seconds of fame. In a moment, we're going to have a new number for you. The number to call is 833-969-4447. And if you don't get through right away, just keep calling because we only have four lines instead of eight. So as someone gets um, gets cleared, that'll open room for your phone call. So start queuing up. 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. My dear Frank Morello. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Ranked Choice Voters. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 833-969-4447. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Ray! Ray. Hey, Frank, pizza suggestion. My sister-in-law sent, lives in Florida sent my, my stepmom... Five pizzas from Naples. They were delicious. Um, Pray to St. Anthony for your keys. Thank you. Neil. Yeah, you uh, gave Ellen a beautiful uh, accommodation there. Why don't you open up the vault and make it official when you do your accommodations? Well, we'll see. We'll see. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, Pete. Pete. Yes. All right, Ed. Fro, oh, excuse me, Fred. Hello. All right, okay. The new phone line was not conducive to this today. All right, hopefully we'll be back to the uh, standard phone lines uh, tomorrow. In uh, meantime, you can stay in touch with me on Twitter at Frank Moreno. Frank Moreno, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.